committee will come to order. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming today, and thank you to our witnesses for joining us today as we examine the current state of the U.S.-Russia relationship and our strategy to deal with the Russian Federation. It's timely to assess our relationship with Russia as we have recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of events that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, Solidarity's election uh, victory in Poland, and the Baltic Way demonstrations, among others. Uh, many, foreman, uh, many, many former Soviet states have become prosperous democracies with memberships in NATO and the EU. But uh, uh, Mr. Putin has taken Russia down another much darker path. Today, many Russians suffer while oligarchs enrich themselves through control of major industries. Russia rigs its elections to ensure only uh, Kremlin-approved politicians make the cut. Russia has targeted and expelled humanitarian organizations and free media outlets, labeling them foreign agents. And the Russian people are inhumanely imprisoned and tortured for daring to disagree with the government. Not only does the Russian Federation make life at home uh, painful for the average Russian, but Putin is also making life hard for people around the world. He has meddled in American and European elections, sowing political chaos. He has propped up the murderous regime of Syrian President al-Assad. He sells arms to human rights abusers in Africa and missile defense systems to U.S. allies and adversaries alike. And in Venezuela, Maduro continues to hang on to power as people suffer, thanks in large part uh, to Russian uh, assistance. Of course, uh, we all know about the invasions of Georgia and Ukraine over the years and about the poisoning of uh, people, Russian people, in London on foreign, on uh, other sovereign soil. The world uh, today is more dangerous and less free because of the Russian Federation. As a result, the U.S. relationship with Russia is at a low point. During the, during the height of the Cold War, our leaders had a lifeline to ensure that neither side made a disastrous miscalculation, the famous red phone. Today, our engagements with Russia are few, and there is a growing risk of a strategic miscalculation on the seas, the ground or in the skies. To be clear, our problems are with Putin and his cronies. To date, the U.S. and our allies have been pretty tough on the uh, Putin regime. Since 2014, we have imposed sanctions on dozens of Russian nationals and companies that have been involved in the illegal takeover of Crimea, the war in the east of Ukraine, downing of flight MH17, as well as human rights abuses in Russia. In 2018, after Russia used chemical weapons on territory of a NATO ally, we closed two Russian consulates and helped coordinate a 20-country expulsion of undeclared Russian spies. The U.S. now rotates uh, troops through, through Poland and through the enhanced forward presence. NATO has stationed troops in the Baltics. The, and America has provided lethal and non-lethal defensive weapons to help Ukraine defend itself from Russian-backed separatists. Each of these sanctions is important to countering Russia's malign global influence. However, they do not form a cohesive U.S. strategy. To successfully deter future aggression, America, including Congress, must think strategically about Russia now and in the future. I encourage today's witnesses to discuss the administration's current strategy towards Russia and what it is intended to accomplish. But I must also urge caution to the administration and Congress about focusing our strategy on sanctions. Sanctions are not a strategy for dealing with Russia. They are simply a tool. While U.S. financial uh, preeminence makes sanctions an easy and somewhat effective tool, 
I have serious concerns about the consequences of their overuse, particularly in the absence of a larger strategy. <coughs> More sanctions don't necessarily make us tougher on Russia. And I'm concerned about the rush to sanction in the absence of concrete policy goals. The Nord Stream 2 bill from Senator Cruz and Shaheen was a well-targeted sanctions bill with a clear policy goal in mind. But more general sanctions actions, when not connected to specific goals, can be counterproductive. And sanctions not done in coordination with our European allies, who are far closer to Russia in both distance and connectivity, is a dangerous action that can undermine our alliances. <coughs> in some cases, when insufficiently vetted, sanctions have been inadvertently helped advance Putin's goals of economic consolidation and <coughs> reinvigoration of Russian industry. These cannot be the outcomes we want. I assume these are outcomes we actually oppose. So with that, I'll yield to Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for calling this very important hearing, which we've been seeking for some time. I appreciate you doing that. Secretaries Hale and Ford, uh, thank you for joining us today to talk about the administration's policy with respect to the Russian Federation. Before we hear from our witnesses, I'd like to outline five essential elements that I believe should comprise our policy on the Russian Federation. First, we must make very clear that so many examples of Kremlin aggression since invasion of Georgia in 2008 are simply unacceptable and cannot become the norm in international affairs. The invasion of Ukraine, illegal occupation of Crimea, the attempted assassination of regime opponents with chemical weapons on foreign soil, committing war crimes in Syria, the attack on our 2016 election, these are just some. Russia is clearly not a country that belongs in the G7, despite whatever President Trump might believe. It is still mystifying that President Trump refuses to stand up to this behavior. To this day, he says that the Kremlin attack on our election was a hoax. Repeating lies from Kremlin propaganda, he says that it was Ukraine that actually interfered in the election. During the Cold War, those who unwittingly broadcast Soviet propaganda were called, quote, useful idiots. I don't know what you'd call those today in the administration or here in Congress who knowingly spout Kremlin lies. Whatever it is, it does a lot of damage. Second, we must implement a clear sanctions regime to change Kremlin behavior. Sanctions on Russia today have clearly not had the desired effect. Why? because the administration has not been serious in their implementation. Several mandatory provisions of CATSA to this day still go ignored. I won't go through the whole list, although I could, other than to point out the most egregious example. It has been 144 days since Turkey took delivery of the Russian S-400 air defense system, clearly a significant transaction under CATSA. And just last week, Turkey tested the system against an American-produced F-16. An American-produced F-16. Enough is enough. CATSA sanctions must be imposed without further delay. Any new Russian sanctions legislation must make clear our ultimate policy goals, what kind of behavior we are trying to change, and how sanctions can be lifted in the event that that behavioral change takes place. If we're going to increase pressure on Moscow, we must also be honest that it could have spillover effects. 
Under an enhanced sanctions regime, U.S. companies may no longer be able to benefit from the Russian economy. America and investors may no longer benefit from the Russian sovereign debt market. The energy market may be impacted. The banking sector could be impacted. We, of course, should seek to minimize these effects. But our ultimate measure must always be how continued Kremlin aggression impacts our national security. At the end of the day, that is the ultimate measure that matters. Third, on arms control. The negative consequences for the United States of abandoning New START when Russia is in compliance with the treaty and is seeking to extend it would be grave in the short and long term. Without New START in place, Russia would be able to upload hundreds of nuclear weapons onto its current strategic nuclear platforms. This rapid expansion of Russia's strategic nuclear arsenal would place the United States at a strategic disadvantage, necessitating a fundamental reconsideration of our force posture. I look forward to hearing your views on this today. Fourth, we need to remember the plight of the Russian people who continue to live under endemic corruption and relentless propaganda. The administration has strayed far from traditional American support for the democratic process, human rights, and universal values. These must be at the center of U.S. policy, especially with respect to Russia. And fifth, we need to support our friends in Europe, especially those on the front line of Russian aggression. European deterrence initiative funding should be increased. Recently, the administration decided to redirect EDI money to the president's border wall. So instead of Mexico paying for the wall, as the president promised, our closest allies in Europe will bear the cost. What a deal. Finally, I want to close on a note about Paul Whelan, the American citizen who has been detained in Russia since last December. If the Russian authorities have evidence, they should charge Mr. Whelan. I, for one, am skeptical that such evidence exists. And if they don't, they should let him go. In closing, Mr. Chairman, I am under no illusion that President Trump shares my views on these five elements of Russia policy. He has abdicated responsibility for defending this country from the threats posed by the Russian Federation. He is simply either not interested or compromised. We in Congress need to step up to defend our security and our institutions. And next week, I look forward to working with you and others on the committee to vote on legislation towards that end. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, we'll now turn to our witnesses. First of all, we'll hear from uh, David Hale, who's been ambassador to Pakistan, Lebanon, and Jordan, as well as special envoy for the uh, Middle East peace. In Washington, Mr. Hale was deputy assistant secretary of state for Israel, Egypt, and the Levant, and director of, of, for Israel-Palestinian affairs. He held several staff posts, including executive assistant to secretary of state Albright, member of the Foreign Service since 1984. He holds the rank of career ambassador and is a native of Senator Menendez's home state of New Jersey. So, uh, Ambassador Hale, please, the floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, that's why he's such an exceptional public servant. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, and uh, good morning, Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez and members of the committee. I welcome the opportunity to be here today with Assistant Secretary Ford to discuss U.S. policy toward Russia. Under President Trump, the United States has taken consistent action against Moscow's attempts to undermine American interests and those of our allies and partners around the world. The United States will continue to use all appropriate tools of national power, including diplomacy, to address and deter any further such threatening actions from Moscow and to advance and protect the interests of America and our allies and partners as they relate to Russia. As articulated in the President's national security strategy, America is in a period of great power competition. We must structure our policies accordingly. The administration's Russia policy takes a realistic approach. 
Russia is a determined and resourceful competitor of the United States, although one with significant systemic and economic weaknesses. Those weaknesses hinder its ambitions. <clears throat> we do not seek an adversarial relationship with Russia. We are open to cooperation with Moscow when it aligns with our and our allies' interests. However, this administration will protect our national security and that of our allies when Moscow attempts to threaten them. To be effective, American diplomacy toward Russia must be backed by military power that is second to none and fully integrated with our allies and all of our instruments of power. The administration has increased the defense budget to $716 billion in FY19 and prioritized nuclear infrastructure investments to maintain a robust nuclear deterrent. Russia's systemic weakness is reflected in President Putin's aggressive foreign policy, which is driven in part by insecurity and a fear of internal change. This oligarchic regime relies on repression to stifle public discontent, as illustrated by its harsh response to this summer's protests, the largest since 2011. The Russian people increasingly realize that the corrupt Putin regime is either incapable of addressing their problems, or in many cases is the source of them. Russia seeks to dominate its immediate neighborhood. In Ukraine, Russia must end its belligerence and implement its Minsk agreement obligations. We are encouraged by the positive steps Ukrainian President Zelensky has taken to resolve the Russia-instigated conflict in eastern Ukraine. Thus far, we are disappointed by Moscow's response. The threat from Russia is not just an external or military one. Moscow utilizes digital technologies to target us and our democratic allies from within. These actions include election meddling and complex, well-resourced influence operations directed by the highest levels of the Russian government in the very heart of the Western world. We provided significant foreign assistance in Europe and Eurasia, almost all of which supports building resilience to and increasing pressure on Russian malign influence in accordance with the Countering Russia Influence Fund. The department has also increased its support for the Global Engagement Center through additional funding and staffing. We have degraded Putin's ability to conduct aggression by imposing costs on the Russian state and the oligarchy that sustains it. The administration has sanctioned 321 Russia-related individuals and entities since January 2017. These sanctions and related actions serve as a warning to the Russian government that we will not tolerate any activity aimed at undermining or manipulating our 2020 election. I confronted Deputy Foreign Minister Ribikov on Russian interference in our elections in July and have raised the matter with Russian Ambassador Antonov several times. We've likewise taken firm action against Russia's diplomatic presence in America. In response to Russia's imposition of a staffing cap on U.S. diplomatic personnel in Russia, we closed four Russian facilities when Russia attacked U.K. citizen Sergei Skripal with a military-grade nerve agent, we closed Russian facilities in Seattle and expelled 48 Russian intelligence officials from the Russian embassy. Our diplomats counter Russian adventurism in other regions, including the Middle East, South America, and Africa, where Russia's actions exacerbate instability and undermine U.S. interests. In Syria, Russian military support to the Assad regime and its attacks against civilians have exacerbated the humanitarian crisis there. In Venezuela, we're pressing Russia to withdraw its diplomatic, military, and economic support for the former Maduro regime. In Africa, we've called out Russia's destabilizing policies, including support for mercenaries. Russia's serial disregard for its international security and arms-controlled commitments represents another significant challenge for our policy. Therefore, the president has charged us to pursue a new era of arms control agreements. We know that Congress has a critical role to play in providing the tools <clears throat> and resources to implement our Russia strategy, and we are committed to working with you in this regard. Mr. Chairman, thank you again for inviting me today, and I look forward to the questions of the committee. Thank you, Ambassador Ford. We now have Dr. Christopher Ford. He's Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation 
We has also been delegated the authorities and functions of the Office of uh, the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security. Dr. Ford previously served as uh, Senior Director for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation at the National Security Council. Dr. Ford began his public service in 1996 as Assistant Counsel to the Intelligence Oversight Board, then served on several congressional staffs. He has served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the State Department's Bureau of Verification and Compliance and as U.S. Special Representative for Nuclear Nonproliferation. From 2008 to 2013, he was a senior fellow at the Hudson, at the Hudson Institute. A native of Cincinnati, he is the author of three books and holds both a doctorate and a law degree. Dr. Ford, welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee for having us here. Um, in his remarks, Undersecretary Hale has summarized the broad sweep of our strategy to approach the challenges that Russia presents us with today. Uh, in my own testimony, I'd like to address these questions from the perspective uh, where I am um, exercising delegated authorities of the Undersecretary, as, as you mentioned. Um, I will abbreviate my remarks for oral delivery, and I would respectfully request that the full, uh, the full version be entered into the record. Thank you, sir. Uh, from the perspective of arms control and the ongoing challenges of managing our relationship and in a strategic sense with Moscow, Mr. Chairman, um, I think it's important to remember that we come to all of these tasks out of a long background, not just of tensions and problems, uh, but also of some notable successes over time. The changes in the strategic environment that were occasioned by the waning and then the end of the Cold War made possible an enormous lasting of nuclear tensions and in, in a strategic arms reduction that has seen both countries' nuclear arsenals come down to small fractions of what they once were. I, I mention this uh, because I think it's important to remember this background. Uh, it reminds us that it is possible to make progress in reducing nuclear tensions and the intensity of our strategic standoff with Moscow when the circumstances of the security environment are conducive to such movement. We hope to get back to such an environment, Mr. Chairman, and our policies are designed to help make this possible as well as to protect the security of the American people and that of our allies until that point. For now, however, of course, the security environment is indeed very challenging. Uh, Russia is presently developing an extraordinary new bestiary of nuclear delivery systems for which there are no U.S. counterparts and most of which seem likely to fall outside existing arms control frameworks. Russia also has a large arsenal of non-strategic nuclear weapons, up to 2,000 of them, a vastly larger stockpile than we have, and it is projected to expand this number of weapons considerably over the next decade. Most observers, Mr. Chairman, will of course be familiar with the Russian 9M729 ground launch cruise missile, which we call the SSC-8. Uh, production and deployment of that system placed Russia in material breach of the INF Treaty, um, and Russian unwillingness to change course in that regard um, forced us into the uh, unhappy position of having to withdraw from the treaty in the wake of those Russian violations. But that SSC-8 is only one of a broad range of new Russian ground, sea, and air-based nuclear or dual-capable delivery systems. These systems have more accuracy, longer ranges, and lower yields than before, and they are coming online in support of a Russian nuclear doctrine and strategy that emphasizes and periodically demonstrates in exercises both coercive and military uses of nuclear weaponry. We assess that Russia does still remain in compliance with its New START obligations, but its behavior in connection with most other arms control agreements, and not merely the ill-fated INF, has been nothing short of appalling. As indicated in Undersecretary Hale's statement, Russia remains in chronic non-compliance with its conventional arms control obligations, and it is only selectively fulfilling others. There is also the problem, of course, of chemical weapons. 
where Russia condones and seeks to ensure impunity for continued violations of the Chemical Weapons Convention by its Syrian client state. Further alarming is that Russia has itself used chemical weapons in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention um, by developing and using a so-called Novichok military-grade nerve agent on the territory, as Chairman Rich indicated, of a NATO ally, United Kingdom, in 2018. Moscow is also up to no good in new and emerging domains of actual or potential future conflict, such as cyberspace and outer space. It's been developing capabilities in all these respects, and even as it has been trying to promote hollow and disingenuous arms control proposals that would not address the challenges that Russia itself is working very hard to create. So this track record is a miserable one. I would refer you to my written statement for some of the details of how our responses are being directed, um, but I would stress that we are working to address these challenges on multiple fronts. Uh, they are robust and they are extensive. These efforts in the Department of State are being approached increasingly systematically as we coordinate them into an integrated strategy for pushing back against Russian mischief. The U.S. national security strategy makes very clear that it is our duty to take great power competition seriously, and we are doing so. It's this kind of resolution and focus, Mr. Chairman, in the face of national security threats that I think we very much need and that can be our ticket to getting through this phase of geopolitical competition. We need to stay on course, maintaining our solid deterrence strategy, completing our own nuclear and military modernization, continuing to reassure our allies not just of our capacity but of our enduring willingness to side with them against intimidation and aggression and keeping all these initiatives on track while still seeking good faith negotiation to advance shared interests where it is possible. If we can do that, I think we can stabilize the situation and indeed turn things around, and that is what our policy is devoted to. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> I'm going to ask a question just to start with, and we'll do a five-minute round. Um, uh, Mr. Ford, for you, um, give me your thoughts, if you would. I, as you know, I was one of the uh, strong opponents of, of New START. <clears throat> New START now has been uh, in place as long as it has, and obviously we can't talk about, in this setting, we can't talk about uh, com uh, absolute compliance by the Russians. But from a general standpoint, I think we can say that they are substantially more in compliance with the new start, the major weapons, than they ever were with the, uh, with the uh, more intermediate weapons that were covered by the INF. Uh, why the disparity there? Why, why uh, were they so far out of whack on INF and just totally would uh, ignored us as far as uh, uh, the, the pressing we did to get them to comply? Why, why the difference between the, the two uh, uh, treaties and the two uh, uh, agreements and, and, and the difference in the weaponry systems. Uh, well, Mr. Chairman, I would hesitate to try to, to get into Mr. Putin's head in this respect, but they clearly made a decision that they felt they wanted to have the capabilities that the INF Treaty did not allow them to have. Um, they seem to have assumed that we would remain compliant with the treaty, even if we found out. Uh, and they were they right were, in that regard. They were absolutely correct, sir. Um, we, uh, we were scrupulously compliant for uh, the entirety of our period in the treaty. Um, that, uh, you know, certainly that is something we are now working to try to address the challenge of meeting those Russian threats with uh, the development of new uh, conventionally armed uh, intermediate range systems, uh, such as the ground launch cruise missile that was successfully flight tested last August. Um, but yes, they assumed we would remain in compliance and that they, uh, and indeed they are correct for a while, that they would be able to get away with uh, not just 
testing, uh, but developing and deploying uh, a treaty-prohibited system uh, in the hope that we wouldn't, uh, wouldn't respond to it. Um, why they did not do something like that with New START is something that I wouldn't be in a position to hazard a guess about, but they don't seem to have decided they needed to. But I would point out, Mr. Chairman, that Russia is developing today and indeed openly brags about the, um, the, de the, the development of uh, new strategic delivery systems, uh, most of which it is very difficult to imagine would ever be brought within the New START uh, arms control framework. Um, we have seen uh, President Putin brag about his development of a new super heavy ICBM, about a development of a nuclear powered and nuclear armed underwater drone. Um, we have, we are now all familiar with the, the, the sort of flying Chernobyl disaster of their uh, nuclear powered cruise missile that uh, had such a catastrophic near critic or criticality incident, I should say, um, up in the, in the White Sea area just last August. Um, they are developing a whole range of systems, including an air-launched ballistic missile. Um, most of these are not likely to fall within New START, and these are things on which the Russians are already working very hard today. Um, so, and that's leaving aside the issue of their development of non-strategic weapons. As I indicated, they already have a large arsenal, and it is projected to grow uh, dramatically over the next decade or so as well. So these are things Russia is already deciding to do and moving out upon um, outside of the framework of current arms control. And that's something that we need to make sure that our policy is in a position to address. Thank you, Dr. Ford. <clears throat> Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you. Uh, Secretary Hale, did, did Russia interfere in the 2016 election in favor of Donald Trump? Could you put your microphone on, please? Yes, the intelligence community assessed that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at our presidential election. Was the Kremlin's interference in our 2016 election a hoax? No. Are you aware of any evidence that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 U.S. election? I am not. You know, um, <clears throat> I appreciate uh, Dr. Fiona Hill's testimony before the House the former National Security Council Director for Europe and Russia, who said that that theory is a fictional narrative that is being perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. Do you have any reason to disagree with Dr. Hill? I do not. In uh, February of 2017, a press conference with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, President Putin himself <clears throat> suggested that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 U.S. election. Did he not? I don't recall that myself, but I don't doubt that. Okay. He said at a 2017 press conference, quote, as we all know, during the presidential campaign in the United States, the Ukrainian government adopted a unilateral position in favor of one candidate. More than that, certain oligarchs, certainly with the approval of the political leadership, funded this candidate or female candidate to be more precise, end quote. Has this been a regular Russian propaganda point since then? I have not uh, followed that that has been a regular point, but I... I don't follow that on a day-to-day -day basis. So. Would it be in Putin's interest to push such a narrative? Possibly. Uh, possibly. Uh, well, let me ask you, you're, you're, the, dep you're the undersecretary here. Uh, how is it that on something as critical as Russia vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States and our national security interests, you would think that it would only possibly be in Putin's interest to push a narrative? What, what would be the other possibilities? I'll say yes to your question, sir. Did President Putin uh, make this point to President Trump when they met in Helsinki last year in any of their conversations? I do not know. Uh, that's, that's the problem. Neither do we. 
It's a big problem, especially when the president meets alone with Putin and even confiscates the notes of his interpreter. But it's curious that Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election does not appear to be the position of senior diplomats like yourself or any intelligence official, yet this lie makes it somehow, somehow into the president's talking points. Is our national security made stronger or weaker uh, when uh, members of the, the administration or members of Congress insist on repeating debunked Russian lies? That does not serve our interests. Now, let me turn to um, sanctions. Uh, does the administration have authority under Section 232 of CATSA to impose sanctions against Russian pipelines? Uh, I don't know that we have that exact authority. I'm not an expert in terms of pipelines. Um. <clears throat> well, let me offer to you that the answer is yes. As one of the authors of CATSA, the administration has the authority under Section 232 of CATSA to impose sanctions against, among other things, Russian pipelines. Then why has the administration not imposed sanctions on Nord Stream 2? The president talks tough about this pipeline, but the administration hasn't lifted a finger to prevent its construction. This committee passed legislation uh, to um, require Nord Stream 2 sanctions. They'll likely be included in NDAA. Senator Shaheen, Senator Cruz are the authors of that. But every day that ticks by is one more where another pipe is laid. And you could act today. you have any idea why you haven't acted in this regard? Well, I will say that we, like you, oppose the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, and we've made our opposition. You oppose it. You have the power to do something about it. Why? I'm, I, I'm trying to get a sense. Is there a policy reason why you have not actually pursued the sanctionable authority you have under the law to be able to stop what the administration opposes? We've been so far using, trying to use other tools to stop the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline from going forward by working with our allies and the EU in particular in that regard. Well, I know the most, that the- The it, most powerful opportunity would be to create uh -huh. a huge problem for the companies involved that would lay the pipeline knowing that they would be sanctioned and that would, that would be the most powerful tool. You have it and you haven't used it. Let me ask the- uh, Secretary Ford, uh, are CATSA sanctions mandatory? Uh, depends which section of CATSA you're referring to, but I believe if you are talking about Section 231, Senator, I think that is uh, yes, sir. And what is the trigger for Section 231 sanctions? Uh, the trigger for Section 231 sanctions is a determination by the Secretary of State that a significant transaction, as it is called, um, has occurred with a with someone on a list of specified persons relating to the Russian defense did Turkey or intelligence be, uh, Did Turkey begin to take delivery of the S-400 system on July 12th of 2019? Um, I don't recall the specific date, but that sounds correct, sir. They took, they took possession. There's no question about that, right? I believe they are in possession. Did Turkey pay for the system? To my knowledge. Uh, public reports suggest anywhere between one and a half to two and a half billion dollars. So a transaction took place, Russia delivered the system, and Turkey paid for it. Is that fair to say? I believe that's correct, sir. Does the presence of the S-400 in Turkey have an impact on U.S. security interests? Uh, we believe it does. That is why we have begun unwinding Turkey from its participation. Does it present a challenge program. to NATO operations in the region? That is why Secretary of Defense Esper and Secretary Pompeo have made very clear that the F-35 and the S-400 cannot coexist. Now, you, you in fact, have sanctioned China for purchasing the S-400 from Russia, which I applaud, but you've sanctioned China for the very exact system that is clearly a significant transaction, but Turkey, 144 days later, with delivery 
payment and just recently tested it against an F-16, which I'm sure made your negotiations a hell of a lot better to try to get to the conclusion you want, and we still haven't sanctioned them. So you send a global message that, in fact, we're not serious about uniformly enforcing the sanctions that the Congress passed 98 to 2 and that are mandatory. And, and that's a challenge because other countries will say, well, Turkey got a pass, why can't I? And the consequences of that undermine the very essence of one of the major sanctions against Russia, which is to undermine its uh, military uh, procurement sales uh, throughout the world. So this needs to be acted, and I appreciate the chairman who's soon having a markup to try to move forward. But when, when you don't ultimately pursue mandatory sanctions, then the discretion that you seek, and other administrations have sought, I acknowledge that, but the discretion that you seek is very tough for some of us to accept because we say if you, if you don't do it when you're mandatory, how are we ever going to believe that when you have discretion, you're, you're not going to consistently use the discretion? So this is a problem. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez, and uh, <clears throat> you're quite right uh, regarding the uh, issue with Turkey, a NATO ally uh, by law, but uh, you're going to have the opportunity, we're all going to have the opportunity to speak on this next week and uh, going to help out the administration in that regard. Uh, we do intend to have a markup next week on the, uh, on the uh, Turkey bill. So uh, with that, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Assistant Secretary Ford's long, let me just follow up on that and give you the opportunity. Uh, what is the reluctance to impose the mandatory sanctions on a NATO ally? Uh, Secretary Pompeo has made very clear that he will comply, that we will comply with the CATSA law. Um, this is a deliberative process that is still currently underway. Um, Ranking Member Menendez is quite correct. We did sanction China. Uh, for taking possession, actually, not just of S-400s, but of uh, Sukhoi fighters as well, flankers. Um, we, they took possession in January of 2018, and it was approximately eight months later, in September, that we uh, issued our sanctions determination with respect to the Chinese procurement entity, uh, known as EDD, as well as its director. Um, so uh, that, as the nature of these things go, that was a deliberative process that we needed to work through in order to make sure that we understood uh, the implications and had done our homework with regard to the sanctions that we did impose upon the Chinese procurement entity. Um, so that is indeed the precedent here. It, was, it took about eight months to do that, uh, uh, rather longer than 144 days. Um, the deliberative process with respect to Turkey is still underway, and uh, uh, that's where we presently are, sir. Okay, I want to give you an opportunity to explain that. Um, Undersecretary Hale, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Broadcast Board of Governors and the capability that uh, has been appropriated for but just has not been particularly used to try and circumvent the firewalls in, around the, the Internet into countries like Russia, China, Iran. Uh, they have not used the appropriations. Uh, they seem reluctant to do so. Uh, we had the uh, confirmation hearing of Michael Pack, the uh, director, the nominee to be director of Broadcast Board of Governors. That nomination seems to be a little bit snagged. Uh, hopefully, we can get uh, that individual confirmed. Uh, can you just, is it the administration policy to aggressively pursue those types of technologies that can circumvent the internet firewalls imposed by countries like Russia and China and Iran? Yes, it is. Can you expand on that a little bit more? What, why haven't we done it? There seems to be a real reluctance and spend more of the money of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, Voice of America, those types of things, Radio for Europe, on broadcast. Uh, programs as opposed to technology that uh, opens up the free internet to repressed uh, citizens? 
I agree with the thrust of your, your concern, and uh, unfortunately that's not an area of my direct responsibility, so I will have to get back some answers for you on this. That makes sense to you, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, again, hopefully this committee can, can uh, pass Michael or can recommend his confirmation to the, the uh, Senate as soon as possible. Uh, Mr. Hale, I'd also just kind of like to get your evaluation of Russia's current relationship with, and you only have two minutes, so pick and choose. I'd like to understand, you know, China's thinking right, or Russia's thinking right now, their relationship to China, uh, to Iran, and to Turkey. Well, I think that in general, um, Russian behavior is characterized by opportunism. Uh, they look for opportunities in order to deflect attention to their internal problems, uh, and they use aggressive tactics to try to undermine U.S. interests and those of our allies in the West. Uh, so I think in that context, and the context of great power competition, Russia and China are finding some congruences of interests. Both want to sort of subvert our values, both want to uh, harm our economies, both want to interfere with our democratic practices. So I would put that in that context. There are also differences, frankly, of interests between China and Russia, but we need to watch very closely what's happening between those two countries. Um, when it comes to, uh, to Turkey, again, I would, I would characterize it as opportunism. Uh, Turkey is seeking to promote its own interests in various ways, at times uh, in congruence with us, at other times we've had uh, to work out our differences. I think Russia seeks to exploit those openings when they can. Um, with Iran, I say that Russia probably plays a less prominent role uh, in, uh, in Iran today than in other periods of history. Um, we continue to consult with Russia, by the way, on all of these topics. We'd like to find areas where we can find commonalities of interest, but it's been difficult to do that. But when it comes to North Korea, to uh, Syria, to Iran, to Ukraine, uh, to Venezuela, uh, to Libya, uh, arms control issues, counterterrorism, we do have dialogues to try to find common ground. So going back to my original question in terms of the mandatory sanctions under CATSA, is part of the deliberative process, is part of the a concern that in, in imposing those, uh, we're going to basically push Turkey right into the, the, the welcoming arms of Russia? Well, um, we are obviously not interested in doing that. We want to make sure that Turkey is anchored fully in NATO as it is today. That's, that's a long-term U.S. strategic objective. Uh, we are trying to, of course, in addition to all the points that the Assistant Secretary made, uh, we are in discussions with the Turks on the disposition of the S-400s in, in a manner that will uh, protect U.S. national security interests and counter Russia's malign influence. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank both of our witnesses and thank the Chair and Ranking Member for this hearing. Uh, Secretary, I want to follow up on the questions on the meddling in the elections by Russia. You've indicated you've had conversations with the Russians about the interference in the coming election. Administrator Ray, FDI Director Ray, uh, testified in July before the Senate Judiciary Committee that uh, Russia absolutely intends on trying to interfere with our elections. So have we just been ineffective in our relationship with Russia to prevent them from trying again in 2020 elections? Uh, has diplomacy failed? Had the sanctions not been used effectively? Has the messaging of this administration not been effective? Or do you disagree with Director Ray? I agree that Russians are seeking to uh, influence the 2020 elections. 
And of course, Russian behavior is not just about influencing elections. They also use social media and other cyber tools to try to sow division in our country on a whole host of issues. Uh, so it's, we have to have a continual focus on this problem. Uh, another concern, of course, is that there's a, a deniability element uh, that the Russians hide behind. Now, we're able. So, in your conversations with the Russians, is that what they're doing? I'm trying to. Yes. You said you've had conversations, but according to Director Ray, we have not been successful in stopping them from trying to interfere in 2020, at least as of July of this year. I have uh, been in frequent engagement with my Russian counterpart and with the Russian ambassador here to expose the information that we have uh, that demonstrates Russian interference, to warn them of the potential consequences if they repeat that performance in 2020. Uh, that's our strategy. Are we taking any other steps to prevent Russia's interference? Well, that's our diplomatic message to the Russians. Uh, we also have a whole-of-government approach to defend and deter uh, our nation from this kind of interference. You, you mentioned misinformation. Uh, in the FY17 budget, Congress uh, uh, appropriated $625 million to counter Russia's uh, influence fund. Can you tell us how effective that was used in trying to counter the propaganda that you're talking about? Well, I don't have measurable data with me today, but we are very pleased to have that kind of support so we can, on a global basis, work with our allies and directly to counter Russia's uh, propaganda. Um, they're not just trying to uh, influence our elections. They've been trying to influence elections all along their border, uh, within the EU, particularly those countries that are relatively new democracies. If my recollection is correct, the administration held up the use of that money for a, a, a period of time. Additional congressional pressure was exerted, bipartisan, to use, utilize that money. You're saying it was very helpful. Uh, is there a, a strategy in this administration to <clears throat> seek additional resources in order to counter Russia's propaganda influence? Yes. I mean, for example, the Global, uh, Global Engagement Center's budget uh, last year or for the first two years was $30 million. We would like, we're asking for $76.5 million. In of course, Congress gave you 600 and some million that you didn't ask for and didn't spend, or, or at least initially. I can tell you from where I sit that that kind of support is very helpful. I want to get to the chairman's point about a strategy. Our foreign policy is always best when it's wrapped within the values of America, what we stand for. And we, we talked about uh, sanctions working, uh, being strategic. And the Magnitsky sta uh, sanctions, I would say, are probably the most targeted sanctions for those who are specifically involved in, in human rights violations. It's the 10th anniversary of Sergei Magnitsky's death. It was in November. Uh, we know that Russia has upped its activities <coughs> against NGOs, against those defenders of human rights, uh, imprisoning uh, uh, people who dissent with Putin. What is our strategy to make sure that they know they have the support of America in what they're trying to do in reforming their own country? Do we have a strategy to up the game against Russia in regards to these imprisonments? Yes, uh, the most powerful thing we can do is speak out, and we do so. Um, and I hope that we'll have an ambassador in Moscow. I'm very grateful for the work of this committee uh, to move that nomination forward because the people on the ground in Russia are, are a hardworking and hard-pressed team at the embassy in Moscow as the first line for speaking out and meeting with and engaging these individuals. Are you aware that there's been a bipartisan letter sent by members of this committee, including authored by Senator Rubio and myself, 
suggesting that you look at Magnitsky sanctions in regards to yes, those? Yes, I am aware of that. And what's the status of that? Uh, I'd have to look into it. Obviously, we have not responded yet, but we certainly intend to. That letter, I think, was sent in July, so it's, it's been a while. Yeah. And the protests, uh, the people who are protesting are still being harassed and imprisoned. Uh, I, I appreciate your words. Actions speak louder than words. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I uh, applaud the fact that the, uh, the, the president uh, looked at China and said, look, we've been asleep at the switch here for far too long. Uh, China's been uh, uh, aggressively pursuing their national interests, and we haven't recognized those interests and have taken action appropriately to push back against them. And, and while I think there's a lot more to be done in developing a, a strategy that pushes back against China, I applaud the fact that we, we finally recognized that we had not been aware of um, the, uh, or, or recognized uh, their malevolent intent. I, I wonder whether the same occur, is occurring today with regards to Russia on the part of the administration. And I say that because what you have described is a series of actions by Russia that are really extraordinarily alarming. And I, I just, I mean, they're investing aggressively in the Middle East with military personnel, uh, uh, in North Africa, uh, in, uh, in Latin America, uh, supporting some of the world's worst actors. Uh, they are uh, violating, uh, did violate the, uh, the INF, and, and, and Mr. Ford, you indicated that they're about to make a massive investment in cr increasing the number of, of uh, uh, nuclear missiles uh, of an intermediate range. Um, they're making, a ma have made a major investment upgrading their nuclear arsenal. Uh, they're developing new technologies, new weaponry, uh, and of course the invasions of Georgia and Ukraine uh, they're interfering in elections around the world, uh, and particularly here in the United States. And so I wonder, what is their ambition? What is their strategy? What is their goal? What are they hoping to achieve? Why are they doing these, these things that a, a country that has a declining population, a weak industrial base, really ought to be focusing domestically? Uh, given our perspectives, they would be trying to find ways to help their people to improve their economy, but instead they're investing massively in weapon systems, in interference around the world. What, what, what is their objective? From our standpoint, from the standpoint of our, of our uh, State Department, what is, what is Russia's strategy? What is their objective? And I, I'll, I'll let either of you or both respond to that. Well, I can start, sir. Thank you for the question. I agree with so, so much of what you said about Russian be behavior. That's why we have to impose costs, and we appreciate the support of the Senate in helping us get the legislation right so we can do that. But as part of a broader diplomatic strategy with intelligence pieces, with law enforcement pieces, uh, with financial pieces, uh, and military elements as well. You ask about the motivations. Um, Russia seems to be striking out in order to distract attention from its internal problems. Uh, Russia seems to want to dominate uh, states around it as some kind of a buffer, uh, perhaps. And they look for opportunities in order to try to demonstrate that America is weak. Uh, so they seek openings in places where there are conflicts and where states may not be as strong as they could be. Those are tactics. I, I, rec yes. I, and I recognize those yeah. tactics. But what is their ambition? Is it to reestablish the, the Russian empire? Is it to, uh, uh, to become a superpower on, on the par with the United States? 
what what are they? Uh, I mean, are they looking to invade other neighbors? I mean, their population is shrinking. Are they looking to grab population from other uh, former Soviet states uh, to rebuild their population and to become more of a, an industrial power, uh, economic power? But what what are they hoping to accomplish? I think that they want to restore their self-image and their global image as a superpower. Mr. Ford? I, I certainly don't disagree with that at all. Um, I think it's actually quite significant that the national security strategy of this administration expressly calls out uh, both China and Russia as revisionist powers who are engaged in a, uh, a great power competition with the United States, that it is our obligation as stewards of the national security interests of the American people to, to pursue and to make sure that we protect those interests. Um, you're quite right about uh, a shift in China policy, Senator, um, and I think very much the same thing can indeed be said uh, about about Russia, um, that our national security strategy and all that we have been doing uh, since its issuance, uh, I think, speaks to. Um, it turns out, unfortunately, that the, the end of the Cold War did not, as many of uh, our policy community seem to have assumed, uh, it did not usher in uh, an enduringly benign security environment in which we got to relax and worry about other things. Uh, it turns out that during that very period in which we took a somewhat complacent approach to great power competition. Uh, mm -hmm. Moscow and Beijing uh, were working very hard uh, at their own strategies to build their influence, to, to as, as we described them in the national security strategy, to take a revisionist approach to the current system of global order. Uh, it's now our challenge uh, to make up for that time and to adopt policies that will help stabilize a deteriorating security environment and uh, try to turn that around so that we can find a stable and safe uh, and, and mutually prosperous way to coexist with them uh, after putting all of these actings out uh, back in line. Yeah, I, I would suggest that, that the goal of, of having a, a, a collaborative uh, coexistence with, with Russia is not something that they're pursuing uh, and that, that they have very different intent uh, and that we need to be very clear-eyed about what their intent is and to make sure that we develop a comprehensive strategy as opposed to ad hoc sanctions here and there against individuals or against various actions that they take, but that we need to have a very dramatic strategy. I go back to the George Kennan strategy in the days of the Cold War. I'm not suggesting we return to the Cold War, but I am suggesting we develop a, a comprehensive strategy that, that, that gets them to be diverted from the course that they're on because they are continuing in an activity that is extraordinarily malign and not in the interest of a peaceful world. And that gives me great concern. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to both of you for your tremendous public service. Um, there is, of course, no way to unwind our policy towards Russia with our policy towards Ukraine. <laughs> Uh, and we're going to have plenty of opportunities in the House and the Senate to litigate what our policy has been in the past towards Ukraine, but I thought it might um, be appropriate to level set and just clarify what our policy is currently uh, towards Ukraine. Um, and so, Ambassador Hale, um, just a few quick questions. Um, is it currently our policy with respect to Ukraine to request investigations into a entity called CrowdStrike? No. Is it currently our policy towards Ukraine to request investigations into the connection between the former vice president's family and a company called Burisma? Not that I'm aware of. Is Rudy Giuliani involved today in any diplomatic conversations with Ukraine? Not that I'm aware of, sir. Okay. 
Um, I think it's important to acknowledge those facts because part of the defense of the, the president's actions will be that those requests were in fact appropriate. And I think it's relevant that since the uncovering uh, of those demands have been made, they are no longer part of official US policy query whether or not um, if those actions were appropriate, they would have been dropped um, after these investigations began. Um, on another topic, um, one of the sort of ways to talk about our competition with Russia is through a prism of what is called asymmetric warfare. They have capabilities that we don't have. And it's always struck me that that is a choice. It's not an inevitability. Um, there are some things they're willing to do that we just aren't willing to do from a, from a moral uh, standpoint, from a standpoint of conscience. But there are also capabilities that they have that we choose not to utilize, in particular the way in which they use their energy resources to um, bully nations around them and to win friends and influence adversaries. We have chosen not to use our energy resources in the same way, but there are appropriate means by which we could provide more direct assistance to countries in and around Russia's periphery to make them energy independent. A bunch of us, Senator Johnson, Senator Rubio, myself, and others, have a piece of legislation that would set up a billion-dollar financing capacity in the federal government to help actually finance energy independence projects in and around the Russia periphery. Um, it strikes me as a way to sort of close this gap that exists without asking our private sector energy companies to throw their weight around in a way that's completely integrated with U.S. security uh, interests. Um, do you agree that there are ways in which um, we could increase the support that we give um, countries around Russia to try to um, end this asymmetry that exists today in the way that they leverage their energy resources and we leverage ours? Yes, I agree very much with the thrust of your comments. And um, it's also, I mean, part of that is making sure that our allies have alternate sources of energy. Uh, that's been a major thrust of our strategy on Nord Stream 2. It's because we don't want Germany and others in Europe to be even more dependent on Russian energy sources. I myself have had multiple conversations in my travels in Ukraine and Belarus and Eastern Europe on this very theme. The private sector, of course, would have to be hopefully a very prominent partner in, in, that, in that enterprise. If, um, if I might, if I might to add to that, I, I think uh, the Undersecretary is quite right, about, and, and yeah. you're quite right about the importance of uh, manipulated energy relationships in Russia's strategic policy. Uh, and one of the things that we are also doing to try to meet this challenge is through uh, not just promote, promoting uh, you know, any particular type of uh, energy alternative, but also focusing upon uh, civil nuclear cooperation. We are working very hard, for example, in my corner of the State Department uh, to promote uh, improved relationships with partners and friends around the world in order to help provide them with alternatives in the form of carbon free nuclear energy um, from U.S. suppliers, which serves our non-proliferation interests, it serves our strategic interests, um, and in promoting those kinds of things and trying to find alternatives to uh, Russian relationships and Chinese relationships, uh, which often come with very uh, elaborate and uh, too-good-to-be-true, uh, you know, debt bondage sort of uh, financing terms, um, at least in, I'm not familiar with with your particular bill, but in principle, um, being able to offer more financing alternatives to our partners in the civil nuclear business would be would be very helpful. My continued hope is that we get that bill before this committee as soon as possible. I think it enjoys support in the administration and on both sides uh, of uh, of this uh, committee. Um, my time is up. I'll end there. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Portman. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And let me start by thanking both of you for your service. Um, and to our native Cincinnatian, uh, like me, I'm going to start with you because you are from Cincinnati. Um, Ukraine. Uh, after the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, I had the opportunity to go over shortly after that and see what was going on. And incredible, here you have a country that was dominated by Russia, chose uh, to take a different direction to encourage economic and political freedom, joining with us in the EU, and uh, we needed to stand by them. And to a certain extent we did, but for the first couple years we refused to give them the assistance they needed to defend themselves against the Russian aggression. I've also been to the line of contact. I've seen where 3,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. Um, it's a hot conflict. I don't care what people say. And, um, and they needed the opportunity at least to try to defend themselves. They weren't asking for U.S. troops. They were asking for, for help. In 2017, 18, 19, the Trump administration did that. And I think that should be noted. Uh, it was a bipartisan effort up here on the Hill, by the way, starting in 2014. And I appreciate the fact you raised that in your written testimony. Uh, my question for you is, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, one, I think it's important that we reestablish the fact that uh, we are indeed allies of Ukraine and that we want to help them. And uh, as, again, this administration has done uh, uh, without precedent, we've been helpful to them. But what do they need now? Talk a little about anti-aircraft. Uh, weaponry, uh, among other things. What can we do to be more helpful in addition to the Javelin missiles and to the ships that we've now provided? Uh, well, Senator, I'd actually add that uh, not only am I a Cincinnatian, I grew up in your old House District, if I recall correctly, but... Uh, Even better. Um, Who'd you vote for? No, it's good. <laughs> that doesn't get, me a, doesn't get me a pass on the question, though, does it, sir? No. <laughs> um, I, I actually am not in a position to speak to the specific uh, operational needs of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. We have certainly gone to enormous trouble, as you quite correctly point out, uh, to try to help them in the very difficult situation that Russian aggression has put them in. I believe we've given something on the order of uh, $1.6 billion or so in various state and DOD um, assistance for their armed forces. That does include, as you indicate, uh, the Javelin anti-tank systems. Uh, I believe there are more Javelins uh, in the pipeline. I think Congress has been notified of an additional uh, move in that respect. Um, I'm not in a position to speak to precisely what it is that they need next, but I, I can certainly, uh, uh, certainly One thing that would that be helpful, I think, to, to the committee, I saw that in your testimony, $1.6 If you could provide us with a list of what has been provided, because there's been some information out there, I think it hasn't been accurate. And, and again, if you could, uh, in talking to the appropriate people, give us a sense of what is, what is needed. Uh, Under Secretary Hale, in talking about Ukraine, uh, as you know, President Zelensky has chosen to take the initiative in terms of a, a peaceful settlement of what's going on on, on the eastern border of, of Ukraine um, and Crimea. And in fact, there's a meeting of the so-called Normandy format, which is uh, France, Germany, Russia, not us, uh, in Paris coming up shortly to, uh, to talk about this. It's happening next week, as I understand it. What's our position? What's the U.S. government position on his initiative uh, to try to resolve the issues uh, on his eastern border and Ukraine? We strongly support him. Uh, Secretary of State put out a statement, I think, last night uh, in this regard. I'm looking forward to the Normandy meeting. <clears throat> we think he's done some considerable steps that have helped uh, move toward a resolution of the problems. We've seen a, a reinforced truce, although, as you say, the war is still hot. Uh, we've seen an exchange of prisoners, which was very welcome. Uh, the Russians returned the vessel that they had seized from the uh, Straits uh, last year. 
um, and they repaired a bridge, pedestrian bridge that's very important for local uh, communications. Um, so we strongly support this, and we, we, have the, we definitely back the president and the people of Ukraine in this regard. I've always thought we should be part of the Normandy group. Why aren't we, and should we be? Um, it's a historical development as to why we're not there. I don't, frankly, I wasn't involved at the time. I don't have an answer for you. Um, but we are very, very closely lashed up with the Germans and the French in this regard. We also talked to the UK, um, and we will be very present during this process. Um, there are discussions about trying to expand it. Um, we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, I would, I would hope that that could happen. On the Global Engagement Center, you mentioned earlier in response to a question from Senator Cardin that uh, you're supportive of it. In fact, you look at your proposal, uh, you're saying you're looking for additional funding. I think that's really important, and I know Senator Murphy agrees. We, we've worked on this over the years to try to ensure that we have the ability to push back on the disinformation, the propaganda. Uh, could you tell us a little about that? Uh, you have a new leader there, uh, Leah Gabriel. I met with her several times. I think she's taking the, the center in the right direction. Um, what kind of capabilities do we need that we don't have, and uh, why are you asking for additional funding? Uh, well, thank you for the, the vote of support for Leah Gabriel. We're also very impressed by her leadership. Um, the the GEC as I understand it, provides primarily a coordination role. So while $75 million is a lot of money, um, there's even more, there are even more resources across our government, across our agencies, to promote this messaging strategy. Um, so if you look at each of those budgets, you'll see components of it, which the GEC will be responsible for helping to coordinate and make sure that we're doing everything we can to counter Russia's uh, propaganda. Okay. Well, thank you. My time's expired. Just to make the point, this is largely countries like the countries in the Baltics that are under enormous pressure. Correct. Um, and so we are, we are helping some of our allies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the new START treaty uh, with Russia is due to expire in just over one year. Uh, fortunately, Presidents Trump and Putin can extend the treaty by an additional five years by mutual agreement. Russia has recently said that new START will additionally cover Russia's only two new strategic nuclear systems that are reported to be deployable prior to 2026, a hypersonic glide vehicle and a new heavy ICBM. Secretary Ford, why would we not extend a treaty with which Russia is complying and which will continue to cap existing and new types of strategic forces? Uh, well, Senator, I certainly haven't said, said that we wouldn't. Uh, that is a decision that has not yet been made. It is currently under consideration. Um, as you indicated, there may be some systems that the Russians are developing now that uh, will or could be brought under New START. Um, and depending upon whether and to what degree it's extended, I, I would qualify uh, your statement slightly in the sense that it can be extended by agreement between the two powers for up to five years, but it could be extended for shorter periods of time as well. Um, what we are doing in approaching New START extension as a policy question is to look at it through the prism of our broader objectives on arms control, and in particular, the President's objective of some kind of a trilateral framework that will help us nip in the bud the potential emerging arms race that's being triggered by not just Russian, but also Chinese nuclear developments. China, of course, being, in addition to all the problems I mentioned with Russia, China being on track to at least double the size of its arsenal over the next decade or so. Uh, and so our hope is to find a framework that will provide an enduring future for the arms control enterprise in bringing those threats under control. And we are approaching New START extension through the prism of how we can most effectively contribute to that broader long So China has a fraction of the warheads and the strategic delivery systems which the United States and Russia have. Uh, and we have 
an existing agreement which can be extended, uh, which um, would then serve as a basis to, in turn, begin to negotiate with the Chinese. But um, if we cannot realistically bring China within an extension of START within a year, does it really make any sense for us to give up on uh, the START extension so that you know, we lose the benefits? As I indicated, Senator, I'm not suggesting that we are or would necessarily give up on uh, on New START extension. The question is how we can best approach these questions in a way. But are you saying that you will? Are you saying flat out you will not extend START if the Chinese are not included? Are you saying that? A decision on these questions has not yet been made, sir. Uh, what we are trying to do is find a way to bring both Russia and China into some kind of an arms control framework that meets the challenges that are presented by their ongoing modernization and their buildup of their nuclear forces, as well as the pressures that their conventional military buildup and regional adventurism are placing in a proliferation. No, I, I appreciate upon that. But our friends it, and allies around the world. It's it just highly unlikely as a time, energy, you know, logistical matter that we're going to be able to bring in the Chinese during that period of time. And if New START expires, will U.S. inspectors be able to conduct on-the-ground inspections of Russian-deployed and non-deployed strategic systems, and will they have access to thousands of notifications on the movement of such systems? I would think that if New START were to expire uh, with it would go the verification protocols and on-site in on inspection uh, procedures that are associated with that treaty, sir. Yeah, so we would lose that which is a huge breakthrough, which was made in terms of that on-the-ground inspections of Russian-deployed and non-deployed strategic systems. I don't think that would be a step that would be advancing our national security. If New START expires, will U.S. Strategic Command be able to as easily predict the future shape and size of Russian strategic forces to inform how the United States configures its own nuclear force posture. Well, our hope, Senator, is that there, it will be possible to put some kind of arms control-based limits upon not just Chinese, but also Russian forces designed to cover some of the things that they are building that are not likely to be covered by New START, such as the... No, I'm talking about if we don't reach... I, I'm talking about drone. if we don't reach an agreement to extend. If we don't reach an agreement to extend, will we lose our ability to see what's going on inside of the... Uh, inside of Russia, and as a result, not be able to as accurately anticipate the shape and the size of the Russian strategic force so that our own research development and ultimate, uh, ultimate uh, deployment reflects the threat that they could be posing. There is certainly visibility into uh, Russian posture that is afforded by the treaty, uh, that if the treaty, when the treaty goes away, uh, whether it is extended or not, we would lose. Um, but what we are also interested in trying to keep our eyes upon is the long game of uh, what happens beyond those five years. Um, in some sense, for the future of this potential emerging arms race that Russian and Chinese actions are on the verge of triggering, uh, the, the even more important question is what happens after those five years. We are on track with our plan of record and our modernization program to cover the next five years and then quite a bit more. Um, what is in some sense more important for the future of arms control and the future of the strategic relationship between these three powers is what happens uh, after that, whether it is in two years' time or six years' time. And, no, I appreciate that. My, my concern, amongst other things, is that if we mishandle this, we could wind up with a new nuclear arms race that could cause uh, cost us trillions of unnecessary dollars. 
um, because we have we missed the opportunity to have a negotiated resolution of the issue first with the Russians, which is obviously something that the Chinese um, deal with, and uh, and uh, and uh, if we don't miss that, if we don't take that opportunity, I just think we're going to wind up with a deficit that is going to be uh, ballooning because of a nuclear arms race that was avoidable. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Ford, I, I was a lead Republican on some legislation uh, dropped with Senator Van Hollen earlier this year uh, that would uh, ensure the U.S. made every effort to engage in New START negotiations and ensure whatever limitations uh, were reached through those negotiations were adequate. Uh, we did uh, address the China issue, which I'll get to momentarily in our legislation, but um, I think I, I just heard you, which is consistent with everything I, I read and hear, indicate that Russia is, is currently in compliance uh, with, with New START, right? Uh, we, we do, sir, believe that they are in compliance with their New START, with the central treaty limits. Uh, we are both okay. parties in compliance. Okay. Um, is there enough time to ne negotiate um, a, a renewal of New START? That, that it's starting to become a real concern because we're at the 15-month mark uh, from when New Start will expire, and, and we're running out of time. So, um, do you feel the same sense of urgency towards uh, renewal? Well, I think there is, in fact, plenty of time to extend if that decision were to be taken. Uh, extension is not something that would be particularly negotiated because it could be simply extended on its own terms. That would simply take agreement of the two parties. In theory, that could be done very quickly indeed. But, but, but it sounds as though there are some reservations to just pure extension on account of the China dynamic, which I think is a fair one, which is why um, Senator Van Hollen and I included that in our um, in our resolution. So um, it, among other things, uh, the, the legislation that we've put forward would require our Director of National Intelligence to assess um, uh, the, the impact that a renewal or an extension would have on China's actions. Um, you know, whether if we stayed in or stayed out, what, what might China do and, and what would the likelihood uh, of, of Chinese uh, compliance with the parameters of, of New START, what would the likelihood of that be? Uh, so we would want to consider the dynamic of, of China under this legislation. Um, and, and, and so I hope this is something that administration will, will study and then report back to uh, members of Congress, irrespective of whether or not that legislation passes. Is, is that something that's being studied right now? Uh, we're certainly very mindful um, of how these relationships between Moscow and Washington affect uh, Chinese behavior and, and vice versa. Uh, I think one of the challenges that we have in trying to build this future for uh, the arms control enterprise and, and, and make it serve uh, our interests and that of international peace and security is to tr precisely to figure out how these three-way dynamics work. We have conceptual templates from the Cold War that are bilateral and sure. dynamic, and, and those don't make sense in a at least trilateral Understood. world. We're trying so to Secretary that out Ford, now. you're mindful of it. Uh, are you conducting a formal assessment of Chinese response to an extension of, of New START or a renewal of New START? We are certainly considering those questions. I don't know that it would be fair to describe it as a, a highly formal assessment, but that is obviously a very important part of our decision-making. And as you quite rightly correct, uh, point out, uh, it's, a, it's a critical question. We're dealing with, we're dealing with nuclear weapons here and in, in uh, important arms control agreements. Wouldn't it be both appropriate and right 
um, to conduct a formal assessment working with our best in, uh, intelligence um, to try and come up with a probability of different uh, Chinese responses and the nature of those responses in, uh, were a renewal or an extension to occur. It seems like that would be a responsible action to take as you carry out your analysis. Do you agree? I think making sure that we have a clear assessment of those questions is very important, sir. Okay. So will it happen? Uh, it is already uh, being considered, and it will, of course, uh, happen that we bring all these questions together. So considered, does that mean a formal assessment is occurring? As I, as I said before, Senator, I, I don't know how formal it would be fair to describe the process, but certainly those are precisely the questions. Is a written work product being produced as it relates to uh, the topic we've been discussing for the last two minutes? We are working with the intelligence community um, and with all relevant elements of the policy interagency to make sure that uh, questions including but not limited to that are part of what our principals are able to, to, to consider as they seek to make a decision on uh, not just New START extension but of these broader questions of how best to pursue a trilateral arms deal. Well, it sounds like at the least if, 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 if we, we can't elicit from uh, the intelligence community or, or from the State Department a formal assessment, uh, then perhaps a classified briefing on this topic would make sense. Um, so we'll follow up on that. What, what's our country doing to ensure a dialogue is in place to negotiate a potential renewal uh, or extension? Well, we've already had uh, in this administration two uh, engagements with the Russians, uh, this, the, what's described as the strategic security dialogue. Um, I actually had the, the great honor and privilege of being able to participate in the first of those in 2017 when I was in a different capacity. Um, last summer, um, Sec Deputy Secretary Sullivan uh, from the Department of State led our delegation to engage uh, with Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov. Uh, in Geneva uh, for the second of these engagements, and we committed to doing another one. Um, it's principally a question of figuring out what the mutually uh, you know, acceptable time is to hold that engagement, but I anticipate that it would hopefully happen in the, in the, in the very near future. Um, these are our principal channel right now for having discussions along these sorts of lines, talking about strategic and arms control and nuclear weapons related issues. It's an important way for us to be in touch with our Russian counterparts and to hopefully understand each other better and to perhaps lay the groundwork uh, for whatever may come, such as uh, potentially at least uh, new start extension talks. In the next 15 months. Thank you so much. I'm, out of, I'm way over time and uh, I appreciate your important service. Senator Merkley. Assistant Secretary Ford, is it correct that the U.S. has had more than 500 overflights under open skies of, of Russia uh, since 2002? I must confess, I don't know the exact number, but I would not be surprised if that were precisely right. Is it, is it correct that we've done about three times more overflights of Russia than they've done over the U.S.? I, I don't know the ratio. Um, certainly all parties to the treaty exchange. Okay, you can just take my word for it then. Uh, okay. Uh, you can check and <laughs> let me know if I'm, if, I'm, uh, if I'm wrong. This produces a lot of uh, confidence-building contacts between the two countries. And um, uh, Deputy Secretary Sullivan, said that any decision to lead open skies would require the unanimous consent of the NATO countries. Do you share that uh, understanding of U.S. policy? Um, I don't have the terms of the treaty at my fingertips with respect to its withdrawal procedures, but I can certainly say that there has been a lot of um, press speculation on our, our open skies policy, not all of which one should 
believe. As uh, Mark Twain, I think, is reputed to have said of his own death, reports of its demise are greatly exaggerated. We are currently complying with... You, be you believe Open Skies country. provides a, a valuable contribution to the nuclear security at this point? Um, it does make contributions to our security and that of our partners. Um, what we are doing right now is undertaking a thorough review of the merits and demerits of continued participation. Uh, no decision has been made to get out. We are going okay. to some trouble to... I'll, I'll just take that. ...our allies and partners. Uh, so Secretary Pompeo, uh, in response to a question I asked him, said that any extension of, of New Start would have to take into account new systems and new actors, which we understood by his conversation to mean China. Now, the new weapons, that's not such a big issue because you've got two systems that the Russian foreign minister has said they already agree would be covered, the Vanguard and the uh, uh, new heavy ICBM that they're building, so the hypersonic glide vehicle and the new heavy ICBM. There are two that wouldn't be deployable until the end of the next decade. Uh, so those we don't worry about too much. And then there's a conversation that has to be worked out over a planned air-launched ballistic missile, which if covered from a heavy, launched from a heavy bomber would be covered, but if it's launched from a fighter, wouldn't be, just like a cruise missile, similar uh, distance would not be covered if it was launched from a fighter. So but that seems like a manageable, it comes down to one weapon system. The China piece, though, that has been raised consistently. So China has approximately how many nuclear warheads? I would uh, refer you to the intelligence community on that. About 300. Would you say that that's in the ballpark of reported numbers? I've certainly seen it much talked of in the press on that. And how many strategic warheads do we have deployed? At present, I'm, I should know that number, I'm afraid, Senator, but I don't have it at the tip of my tongue. It's, it's about 1750. And for Russia, it's about 1,600. And how many total warheads do we have if we include tactical warheads? Uh, not much more than that. Well, quite a lot more, actually, several thousand more. Uh, but the point is 300 Chinese warheads with, with their triad in the kind of uh, infant stage of development. We have a very sophisticated triad, so does, does Russia. We have just in strategic warheads more than five times uh, their number. That's a huge disparity. Are we really going to say that we have to resolve the architecture between China uh, with this neophyte uh, program and U.S. and Russia with a much larger sophisticated program in order to extend New START? I wasn't making the point, Senator, that all of that needs to be resolved and tied up with a bow before one reaches the uh, end of whatever lifetime New START still has. Um, we do think it is incredibly important that we be engaged with both Russia and China in finding a future that is trilateral for arms control, because if we cannot do that, uh, we will run up against the same problems. So as you think about problems. that, do you think of the U.S. coming down to the Chinese number of 300 or the Chinese being given permission to come up to the U.S. number of 1750 deployed strategic warheads? Are you advocating for an increase in Chinese weapons? Uh, no, I'm actually very keen to try to... Are you advocating that the U.S. come down to the Chinese level? I am advocating that we find a way to stop what is now an incipient arms race from becoming a full-blown and very dangerous one. Um, and it's not... Well, you have to argue for one or the other. You either have to argue for us to come down or China to come up. Or you're arguing that, that you think they would agree to differential numbers, locking them into a, a much lower number than the U.S. Are you arguing for that? Uh, actually, what the President has directed us to do is to pursue a trilateral cap on the arsenals of all three powers precisely in order to stop what could be a very dangerous emerging arms race and give us okay. all breathing space to... Okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed. The long term. I, really, I really am disturbed that 
in order to take into the vast difference between China and the U.S., you have one of three options. You either have to argue that, that we're going to put on a cap that China is going to be able to come up to, or a cap closer to China that we're going to come down to, or that you think you can lock in a differential with China that they would agree to. Those are the three options, and you haven't said you support any of those three, and, and you're saying that you know we're just a year out uh, from the end of the, the initial new start, and there haven't been serious negotiations with China to figure out which of these three options you're going to pursue? I don't like any of the three of them myself. Well, I would say, Senator, that, that those kinds of questions are just the kind of thing that we need to be and should be talking about with our Russian and Chinese counterparts, which is why it is so essential for them to come to the table with us to engage on finding a future that manages these challenges effectively. Okay, well, you haven't engaged in those serious conversations yet, and I know from the past arms negotiations it can take many, many years to work out details when there are actually fairly uniform uh, relationships between two powers, and this is a, not a uniform relationship. Uh, so I'll just close there since I'm over time, but uh, I think what we don't want to see is this China use as an excuse to blow up the existing or potential extension of an agreement with Russia that contributes to international security uh, and, of course, in the nuclear realm, that's very important to our survival. Thank you, Senator. Um, Dr. Ford, for the edification of this committee <clears throat> and understanding this is an open setting uh, regarding uh, the uh, Open Skies Treaty, can you talk a little bit about the disparity, the, the issues that Russia has caused as far as uh, not allowing access uh, and perhaps enlighten people on what, why that's causing difficulties with where we are? Uh, I'll try, Mr. Chairman. Um, we, we first found Russia to be in noncompliance with its open skies obligations in the summer, I believe, of 2017. Um, but I would stress that was the first time at which we found them to, we decided to declare them in noncompliance. In fact, the things that they had been doing at that point, and in many cases are still doing, are things that they had been doing pretty much continuously since the treaty came into force in 2002. Um, we have found them to uh, to be in noncompliance with regard to certain overflights of the Baltic enclave of Kaliningrad. We have found them to be in noncompliance with regard to flights in the vicinity of uh, the enclaves that they essentially invaded and, and carved off of uh, the country of Georgia um, and uh, are maintaining there by proxy forces. Um, and we have found them to be selective in allowing, not allowing some overflights of Russian military exercises. Um, all of these things you know, amount to a situation in which Russia has been in chronic noncompliance with some open skies obligations and a selective noncomplier with other of their open skies obligations. This causes great concern to us and to our allies quite naturally. Yeah, and, and obviously uh, unlevels the playing field that the treaty is supposed to create, is that correct? Um, that is a challenge and a question. We have uh, not, uh, it has not gotten to the point where we have declared that uh, we feel there to be, had to have been a material breach, but there have clearly been breaches, and they are things that we very much hope that Russia will turn around. Um, we are looking at the situation day by day. Thank you very much. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to both of you for your time and testimony today. Uh, the Russian Federation under Vladimir Putin has invaded its neighbors, Georgia and Ukraine. It supports the murderous regime of Bashar al-Assad, uh, our enemies in Afghanistan, and it's engaged in active information warfare against Western democracies, including meddling in the United States election in 2016. 
Russia is also responsible for heinous actions such as the downing of Malaysia Flight 17 over Ukraine in 2014 and the chemical attacks in Salisbury, United Kingdom in 2018. Uh, clearly an adversary. Uh, their malicious uh, interference in 2016 elections uh, and continue to intend to do that uh, uh, in 2020 and other democratic elections around the world as well. Uh, I believe Vladimir Putin's a thug. The Russian Federation should be designated a state sponsor of terror, terror uh, to join Syria, North Korea, Iran, and Sudan. Uh, this committee has been working on a number of um, bills, uh, stopping malign activities from Russian uh, Terrorism Act, SC-1189, the bill that Senator Menendez and I have uh, uh, authored to require the State Department to submit a report to Congress establishing whether or not Russia fits the criteria to be declared a state sponsor of terror under U.S. law. DASCA is a bill that uh, many on the committee have worked to put together uh, that uh, obviously uh, creates uh, economic, political, and diplomatic pressure on uh, Russia in order to respond to Russia's interference in uh, democratic processes, the malign influence in Syria, their uh, aggression against Ukraine and in the Strait as well. The European Energy Security and Diversification Act, Senate Bill uh, 704, that many of us have worked on, uh, legislation that would authorize a billion dollars to help finance uh, catalyzing uh, public and private investment uh, in European energy projects to help wean their dependence off of Russian energy uh, assets. Uh, so we know that Russia supports uh, terrorist groups. They've carried out the actions that we've talked about. Uh, we know they fund insurgencies and separatist movements around the world. Uh, they've interfered in democratic elections, and they've found it, uh, been found to be responsible for a chemical attack in the soil of a NATO ally. Uh, Secretary Ford, do you believe that Russia is a state sponsor of terror? Um, I, I must confess, Senator, my portfolio doesn't have a lot to do with uh, SST designations, and I'm not as familiar with the, the, the elements that go into that as I, uh, as I probably should be. I would defer to others on that question. Dr. Ford? Uh, excuse me, Dr. Hale. Excuse me. Um, Secretary Hale, Dr. Uh, Ford, sorry about that. I'll, I'll answer to any uh, title. Um, the State Department has not at this stage determined that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. There is a fairly complex deliberative process for doing that, and we look forward to sharing information and working with you and other members of the committee. Based on these descriptions, though, I mean, do you believe that they would fit the criteria? Well, I agree with all of your characterizations of Russia's malign behavior. Um, I don't personally see that, per se, as state sponsorship of terrorism, terrorist attacks, um, but they are supporting they're getting very close to the edge in some places on that. Um, we also have to recognize Russia is itself has been a victim of terrorism, too. I think it's safe to say that on the record as well. Uh, we have seen, uh, I think in 2016, a series of RAND uh, reports and analyses that showed, uh, based on Russia's uh, buildup in the military, that they could uh, sweep the Baltics in less than 60 hours. Uh, Secretary Hale has that analysis changed to any degree with the increases in investments in NATO and other developments we've seen in Europe? Um, I'm not familiar with that RAND study, and I'm not an expert on these matters, but I can tell you that we are very concerned about the defense of all of our NATO allies, and particularly the vulnerable Baltic states, and therefore have done a great deal to bolster their defenses and to increase NATO's uh, troop presence and other uh, instruments on their soil. When it comes to uh, Europe and the actions of our European allies, uh, what, uh, what actions is the United States taking to press? Uh, what are we actually pressing our European allies to do more when it comes to uh, Russia's uh, continued aggression? Well, I think job number one is to increase their defense spending in line with the Wales Pledge of 2% and also to um, 
realign the burden sharing in the NATO Common Fund. We, these are topics under discussion as we speak in, in the NATO summit. Um, we also are very focused on the vulnerabilities of the eastern flank of NATO, if I can put it that way. Uh, these are n relatively new democracies, and they are very, um, very vulnerable to Russian intimidation, Russian tactics to use uh, corruption, uh, use access to media uh, to undermine those societies from within. We've seen cyber attacks and other types of interference that have been really quite dramatic. And so we want to boost those defenses as well, which is more complex than just a military response. We have to use all the tools we've talked about in other questions. <clears throat> thank, thank you, Mr. <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. Dr. Ford, in your opening statement, you talked about progress that's been made in reducing nuclear tensions. And I've listened to the back and forth around the New START Treaty do you support an extension of the New START Treaty? Uh, Senator, I would support it if I concluded that that were the most effective way to contribute to our goal of bringing both China and Russia into some kind of an arms control framework. And that's just the question that we are all considering right now. And did I understand you to say that we look for opportunities and areas of mutual agreement where we can work with Russia on some things? Uh, yes, indeed. We try to keep channels of communication open and find ways to and, work together on shared interests. And hasn't Vladimir Putin actually suggested that this is one area that um, he would like to see negotiations resume? Uh, I believe the Russians have, um, have made that clear. They also, by their actions rather than by their words, have made it clear that they would like to continue uh, an uninterrupted military buildup and a nuclear buildup. In yeah, I'm not America. asking you about that. I appreciate the uninterrupted military buildup. I think we would all agree that that's not something that we want to allow to continue to happen and we need to look for, worse, for ways to uh, prevent that. But I'm asking you about New START only. Um, when, isn't it possible that we could move forward with an extension of New START at the same time we're looking to negotiate other issues and include China and other nations that may be a concern in terms of nuclear weapons? Uh, that is indeed one of the possibilities that we are considering right now, ma'am. Why would we not want to do that? Well, I think we would want to do that if we determined that that was the best way forward to meet the longer-term objective of bringing these troublesome arms race dynamics under control. So what's the long-term concern about doing that? Because that would give us more time to actually negotiate um, a broader agreement that would include China and could potentially look at other areas where there are weapons that we might want to include in a treaty. So why would we not want to continue an extension of New START? As I indicated, that is uh, precisely one of the, the questions we are considering and the alternatives that we are mulling over right now. Uh, we don't have a decision from our interagency and our principals um, as yet, but that's certainly one of the things that is before them. Um, I would suggest that well, I would align myself with the comments of Senator Merkley that I think this is a red herring to suggest that we can't do anything about New START without including China and some of the other issues. Um, so I would hope that we would look at how we can best move forward and continue the progress that's been made under New START while we look at other ways we can negotiate um, a broader agreement. 
Ambassador Hale, I, I continue to be very concerned about the repercussions of the decision in Syria to withdraw our troops and what that means in terms of increasing Russia's influence in Syria and the Middle East. Can you talk about what our withdrawal um, has done to strengthen Russia's position in Syria? Well, we've, we do still have troops, of course, uh, present. Um, there's been an adjustment um, uh, in line with all the news that we've seen and the agreement that was reached in October. Um, we are, we've had a dialogue and continue to have a dialogue with Russia uh, on Syria. Um, do, we have, do we have any potential to influence their bombing of Idlib and what's happening in that part of Syria? Well, we've have we tried to do that? Yes, we have. Uh, um, Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, who is our envoy handling these matters, has had intensive discussions with his Russian counterpart. I have as well with my counterparts, and I'm sure the Secretary has engaged as well. Uh, we believe these kinds of bombardments absolutely <laughs> must stop. Um, and we will not be able to really cooperate well with the Russians unless they do so. Uh, is that the only leverage we have to say we're not going to cooperate with you if you don't stop bombing? Uh, when it comes to, I was just talking about not cooperating in the case of Syria. No, the, the Russians know we have a, a wide range of tools. That's part of the benefit of having sanctions is that they know that that is a potential avenue we may go down. Um, but we haven't suggested that that would be an option in Syria if they continue bombing. I've not had that discussion myself, Senator. Um, so the president was just in Afghanistan and one of the things he suggested was that he was planning to resume talks with the Taliban. Do you know if there have been any discussions with Russia, um, either with respect to Syria or Afghanistan, about potential role that they could play in helping to address the resurgence of ISIS? Yes, Ambassador Khalilzad and Ambassador Jeffrey, as I mentioned, uh, both talked to their Russian counterparts intensively about this. Um, we would like to see stronger Russian cooperation, not just in defeating de-ISIS, but in helping these political processes that are needed to stabilize these countries so de-ISIS, excuse me, ISIS doesn't have the opportunity to, uh, to regroup and to, uh, to develop. Uh, so that's the essence of our approach with the Russians. And what's their response been? Uh, less than ideal. They have not offered the kind of support that we would expect from them. And when we actually had a presence in Syria, they were not and were engaged full-blown in the fight against ISIS, they were also not helpful in that effort particularly, were they? They were not. Um, again, as we think about restarting talks with the Taliban, do you have any sense of what um, discussions there will be around the resurgence of ISIS in Afghanistan, actually it's not a resurgence, the growing presence of ISIS in Afghanistan and what, what we'll be asking the Taliban to do with respect to ISIS? I don't want to get into classified information, so let me just offer generally, this is a growing concern, source of alarm in the administration. I was ambassador to Pakistan as my last assignment. We watched it begin then um, and we were ringing the alarm bells and I think effectively. Uh, we need to make sure that all elements that are prepared to come into a peace process are focused on that problem uh, as well. Thank you, Mr. <clears throat> Chairman and Ranking Member. I would hope that you would consider a classified hearing to discuss the potential for ISIS to be a problem in any negotiations with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I think that's a huge threat, and we need to be concerned about it. Thank you.
I agree with that, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about having a, a briefing in that regard. Thank you so much. Uh, Senator Paul, you're next. Ambassador Hale, sanctions are intended to change behavior. For years, we've been adding sanctions to Russia. Can you name some specific changes that Russia uh, has undertaken with regard to and because of our sanctions? <clears throat> well, we, this is a work in process. I mean, we've not achieved our uh, overriding objectives in terms of having Russia uh, withdraw from Ukraine. Certainly, they continue to violate human rights, um, and, uh, and we continue to see interference in our elections. So we so, will continue so no, to use No specific tools. changes from Russia that you can name? Well, there may be a deterrence effect that is hard to measure. I mean, we want to continue. The, 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 it's going to take time, as we know, in, when it comes to sanctions regimes for them to have their But we've put on sanctions for some specific behaviors we don't like, and there's not any indication that there's been any change in Russia's behavior. Are there discussions with Russia, specific discussion, discussion saying, if you do X, we'll remove these particular sanctions? Are there that level of particular discussions with Russia? I think the Russians are well aware of what they need to do in order to get <clears throat> sanctions relief. But no specific discussions on, you know, we'll remove sanctions on your members of the Duma coming here if you do X. I think in various conversations that that may have been touched upon. Well, I think this sort of illustrates sort of the problem. It's easy to put sanctions on. It's easy to say we want to change behavior, but it doesn't seem to really be working. And if it's not working, maybe we need to reconsider exactly, you know, what we're doing. We've also put sanctions on that Congress uh, decides that we know better than the president, so we're going to put sanctions on, and then the president can't take them off. Do you think that makes it easier or harder to negotiate behavioral changes if Congress puts on sanctions that uh, the president doesn't have the means or the power to remove? I think it makes it harder in, in most instances. I think you put your thumb on a very important point, which is the need for reversibility and flexibility. Often the threat can be more effective than the actual imposition of a sanction. Probably the only time I can think of in recent times where sanctions actually appeared to work, and it was very obvious, was uh, the president either putting on or threatening sanctions on Erdogan recently in Turkey, and then immediately when the behavior changed, removing the sanctions. So I would argue that the threat of sanctions actually has leverage, but once we place them on, they almost have no leverage, and we leave them on for decades, and it doesn't appear to anything's changing. And in fact, contrary to what people think, that we may actually get the opposite. It may actually solidify bad behavior because countries have their own sort of national pride, and once they get their back up, they're like, well, we're not changing. You know, we're never going to do that in result of it. Um, some would say that sanctions worked in bringing Iran to the table for the, for the Iranian agreement, but the contrary argument also might be that it finally came because we engaged Iran and we offered them something. They actually signed the agreement because they got something in exchange. And so I think as we look at the world, we can, we can think that we can tell the world what to do, but it, it doesn't seem to, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of it working. There may also be the evidence that, or at least the argument can be made, that sanctions or embargoes, such as the long-standing embargo with Cuba, may actually have the opposite of the intended effect. And it seems like we would want to study these things because, uh, you know, the Castro's for decades said basically your economy sucks and you have no food because of the Americans and because of the embargo. So I think we ought to at least uh, be open to the, the argument of whether sanctions work. We ought to try to study whether they work. If we believe that sanctions are the way to go, we should also have a, an, an additional effort saying 
well, we want to have this talk with you about if you'll do X, we'll do X, you know, that there's some kind of exchange. The problem is, is it's like so many things that we have, we start out with um, unrealistic propositions. So like our proposition with Russia is when you leave Crimea, you know, then, then we'll consider relieve, relieving your sanctions. You know, I think from a practical point of view, I think it was wrong that they invaded Crimea, and I don't agree with the policy. I think it's also very, very unlikely that they ever leave Crimea, short of someone pushing them out of Crimea. And so if that's our point, the sanctions will stay on forever, and eventually the Russians will say, you know, and they simply will have no effect. So I think we do need to look at, if we believe that sanctions work, we need to have negotiations with our adversaries and say, all right, if you do X, we'll do X. One very minor thing I proposed and got virtually well, really no support, I had to vote in this committee to try to relieve sanctions on Russian members of the legislature to travel here. And it's like we're sanctioning diplomacy. And I was the only vote for allowing Russian members to come here. But that's a very small sanction that could be exchanged for something. There are things that the Russians want that we could at least exchange little things for little things as opposed to saying you have to do everything for everything. Because I think as a consequence, we, nothing ever happens because we have two, our, we're, our goal goals are too large and too unreasonable. Uh, your response? I agree, Senator, that we should be very thoughtful uh, about uh, how we impose sanctions. The more that they're targeted and specific in nature, the better off we are. We agree about the main need to maintain flexibility and reversibility so we can incentivize the target to behave the way we want that in that's the key, the reversibility. Yes. We have to be negotiating how to unwind them or they're of no value. I agree, sir. And I, I would just make the general point that we shouldn't look at sanctions in isolation of our overall diplomatic strategy. Thank you, Senator. Um, th there's certainly some valid points that Senator Paul has made regarding sanctions. I think uh, we have a tendency to reach for those quickly um, without the thought process sometimes that you need to go into them. Having said that, uh, I think it's, it, it uh, stretches a little bit to say, well, what, how effective have they been? Because you can't measure something they didn't do uh, in light of the fact that they were facing sanctions. So that, that's hard to do. But on the other hand, I think the, the more uh, appointed they are, and, and particularly the ability of the administration uh, to be able to remove them when they want to is, is important. And I know you you consider that uh, whenever uh, we're working with these. So thank you very much. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, um, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, and I'd like to thank uh, both of you, uh, Under Secretary Hale and Assistant Secretary Ford, uh, for your long service to our country and for your testimony here today. Uh, Under Secretary Hale, Russia undeniably attacked our elections in 2016 and has every intention of doing so again, according to the director of the FBI and the director of national intelligence. And as you confirmed in response to earlier questions from Senator Menendez, as you yourself said in your opening testimony, Moscow engages in election meddling and complex, well-resourced influence operations directed by the highest levels of the Russian government. I agree. Uh, you went on to say, understanding <coughs> this threat is essential for developing a long-term response. Um, two weeks ago, Dr. Fiona Hill of the National Security Council testified uh, before the House Intelligence Committee that uh, the Russian intelligence services have, in fact, been promoting a false narrative that Ukraine interfered in our 2016 election. And you previously uh, told Senator Menendez in response to his questioning that you're not aware of any credible evidence that Ukraine interfered in our 2016 elections. Uh, would you agree, as you said in your own opening, that understanding the Russian threat requires our also being clear that there is no evidence of Ukraine having interfered in our 2016 elections? Yes, I do, Senator. Uh, 
Um, have you seen any intelligence assessment or any um, open source reporting that would support the idea that Ukraine interfered in our 2016 election? I've seen nothing that's credible along those lines, sir. Are you aware of any U.S. diplomat or uh, executive branch official who's asserting publicly that Ukraine interfered in our 2016 elections? Any diplomat? Anyone other than President Trump? That's correct, sir. Um, so if an American politician of either branch um, repeats this Russian disinformation effort, says falsely that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in our 2016 election, does that promote our diplomatic interests or our national security? Well, it's a free country. People can debate any ideas that they want. Um, but our focus at the State Department has been, and as it should be, on the proven Russian interference in the 2016 elections and plans to do so in 2020. And would be... Would it be in the interests of securing our 2020 election uh, to continue distracting the American public, American legislators, um, from that demonstrated Russian intent to interfere? Well, again, I, I have said that I've seen no credible evidence about these allegations of Ukraine. So, I, I, again, as, as foreign policy uh, practitioners, our focus is not there. It's on the Russian problem. Well, on the Appropriations Committee, I worked uh, with Senator Leahy and colleagues from both parties to secure an additional $250 million, uh, this year in election security funding in an appropriations bill that's not yet uh, passed the House and Senate. This would prevent future cyber attacks against our election machinery. Do you think that's a wise domestic investment in our own election security? And do you think we should be doing not just that but more to secure democracy here in Europe against Russian aggression? I'm not familiar with the details of the legislation, but in principle I believe firmly that we need to do everything we can to deter and necessary defend against these attacks here at home and with our allies. Well, thank you, Ambassadors. If you've heard from many senators today, uh, we agree Russia needs to pay a price for attacking our elections, for their annexation of Crimea, their ongoing support for separatists in Ukraine, their undermining democracy in Europe and separating the United States from NATO, their support for the murderous regime of Bashar al-Assad, and the list goes on. Um, one area of real interest to me where Russia has recently stepped up their brazen and exploitative activities is in Africa. Um, strengthening ties with African countries is one of Putin's top foreign policy goals. Uh, in October, he convened more than 40 African heads of state uh, for a Russian-led conference in Sochi, and they've demonstrated their influence uh, or attempted to influence uh, recent elections in Madagascar and Guinea and Congo and Zimbabwe um, and in the Central African Republic. Uh, last month, uh, I introduced the Bipartisan Libya Stabilization Act, uh, which would include sanctions on those involved in the Russian intervention there and would require an administration strategy to push back against Russian actions there uh, in Libya. Um, and according to recent public reports, there's literally hundreds of Russian mercenaries now in Libya. What is the State Department doing uh, to address or limit Russian influence in Africa, in Libya, and in some of the other countries I just mentioned? Well, again, it's a topic of our, of our conversations with the Russian officials. Uh, I don't think that that dialogue is producing or yielding results that are uh, necessary for our national security. I think more significantly is to point to our policy toward Africa and toward African states. Uh, we are trying our best to, uh, to make sure that the, our relationships with Africa are uh, well-maintained, um, that we are promoting U.S. business uh, there. We are also increasing our assistance levels so that U.S. business uh, can be participating in the economic growth and development of those countries. 
Um, I think that's a very important area. Also, our cooperation in areas of security uh, in the Sahel, uh, that's very important. In the matter of Libya, I would say our strategy there is, of course, to try to do what we can to bring about a ceasefire and compliance with various UN Security Council resolutions so that the situation is stabilized. Meanwhile, we have thrown a spotlight on Russian, the Russian presence there in, in various statements, but it is most unsatisfactory. Well, um, I see my time's expired. Thank you, Mr. Undersecretary and Ambassador, for your testimony today. Um, and I look forward to our working to keep an open line of communication between the administration and uh, the Senate, because I think continuing to cooperate in standing up to Putin's aggression against our upcoming elections is very important for the future of our republic. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen, thank you for your testimony today. Uh, Secretary Hale, you just said a moment ago in response to Senator Coons and, uh, that our focus is on the Russia problem. Uh, I agree with that sentiment. Uh, I think the administration needs far more of a focus on the Russia problem. Russia is not our friend. Putin is not our friend. I want to focus right now on two areas where the administration can do better. Let's start with Nord Stream 2. In your judgment, if Russia completes the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, what would the effect be for Russia, for Europe, and for the United States? Very negative. It would create another tool for the Kremlin to use Russia's energy resources to divide Europe and undermine and destabilize Ukraine. As you know, we're at the precipice of Nord Stream 2 being completed. Last month, the last regulatory barrier that stood in place, Denmark gave the final environmental approvals to complete the final portion of Nord Stream 2. My understanding is we're roughly 60 days away from the completion of that pipeline. It is now or never. As you know, I authored bipartisan legislation in this committee that passed this committee by an overwhelming bipartisan vote, a vote of 20 to 2, to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It is narrow, targeted sanctions, like a scalpel, designed specifically to prevent the only ships that can lay the pipeline from laying the pipeline and completing that pipeline. Now, there is some hope that the Senate, even in this bizarre partisan time, will manage to work together. There's been considerable progress, perhaps passing that Nord Stream 2 legislation as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. I am hopeful that will happen. I'm grateful for the assistance of Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez to try to make that happen. I think that would be an enormous bipartisan victory for the Senate and for the United States. But that being said, at the end of the day, we don't need to pass that legislation to stop this pipeline. The administration has full authority under CATSA right now, today, to impose those same targeted sanctions, those sanctions that would result in shutting down the ships that are laying the pipeline and stopping it right now, today. Why has the administration not yet acted? Well, we've been using our diplomatic tools to uh seek our goal of stopping this project. We sh I think you and I share, uh, the administration shares your... your Has concern. that succeeded? At this stage, uh, we've slowed it down, but we have not stopped it. Is there any prospect, is there a snowball's, snowball's chance in hell that talking to the German ambassador is suddenly going to magically stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Certainly not talking to the German ambassador, but we have a range of you know, leadership engagements on this, which are still unfolding. Um, we do have some time. There is a deliberative process about what our options are if we clearly come to the conclusion our diplomacy has not achieved our goal and sanctions are among them. 
So, Secretary Hale, let me give you a, a very clear message to take back to your colleagues. I have had multiple conversations with Secretary Pompeo, with Secretary Mnuchin, with the White House on this topic. Time is of the essence. A strategy that is let's pursue our diplomatic options at this point is a strategy to do nothing. It is a strategy that will result with 100% certainty in the pipeline being completed and Putin getting billions of dollars, in Europe being made energy dependent more so on Russia and in weakening the United States' position in the world. The administration can stop it. It is only inertia. There have been principled meetings. There have been, sadly, some bureaucratic intransigence, I think particularly from the Treasury Department, pushing back against exercising clear statutory authorization to stop this pipeline. I want this to be very clear. If the pipeline is completed, it will be the fault of the members of this administration who sat on their rear ends and didn't exercise the clear power. You have an overwhelming bipartisan mandate from Congress to stop this pipeline. It is clear, it is achievable, it is a major foreign policy victory. And the only thing that will, would allow this pipeline to be built is bureaucratic inertia and dithering within the administration. So I very much hope that dithering ends and you exercise the clear authority and stop this pipeline before it is completed next month. Thank you for your message. I want to turn to a second topic on Russia, which is Dr. Ford. We were talking about the Open Skies Treaty, and, and you said something there that I, that I wrote down. Uh, because it, it, it startled me. You said, and I think this is verbatim, it does make contributions to our security and those of our partners. Uh, Dr. Ford, it is my understanding that that statement is directly contrary to the assessment of the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. And in fact, I will give you some specifics. In 2015, uh, then the director of the intelligence, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency under President Obama, General Vincent St St Stewart, told Congress, quote, the open skies construct is, was designed for a different era. It allows Russia to get incredible foundational intelligence on critical infrastructure, bases and ports, all of our facilities, and it gives Putin, quote, a significant advantage. Um, the Stratcom, the head of, head of Stratcom in 2016, commander of Stratcom, said it gives Russia, quote, a capability to be able to reconnoiter parts of our countries and other nations. 2017, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, told Congress, quote, we don't believe the treaty should be in place if the Russians aren't complying. You told this committee, quote, Russia is in chronic noncompliance. We are allowing Russia to fly over the United States to engage in reconnaissance on our major cities, our defense infrastructure, New York City, Washington, D.C. We're making ourselves more vulnerable, and we're gaining, as I understand it, little to nothing because everything we would gain from the overflights, we gain from our satellite technology. And Russia is not complying with the treaty. How is it possibly in our interest to benefit the Russian military by exposing our defenses while not gaining serious, actionable intelligence on the other side? Uh, well, Senator, those are some of the very questions that we are, in fact, considering right now in the course of our Open Skies review. Uh, when I said that there are some, that the treaty provides some benefits, I think that is true. There are also clearly, as you quite correctly point out, some problems and some concerns. I think the relevant question is what the sort of the net is between benefits that it offers and the challenges that it presents. And it's evaluating the, the, the relative weight of each of those elements on the scale uh, that is precisely the policy question that, that we are 
trying to assess. On the positive side, our allies and partners, uh, many of them feel, seem to feel uh, strongly that there are confidence-building benefits and diplomatic benefits that they feel strongly about. We need to take that into consideration, and we are carefully consulting with them. Uh, but at the end of the day, we do need to make a call um, as to how that, what that net equation looks like. Uh, and there are elements on, on both sides. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to both of you for coming. Uh, Secretary Hale, good to see you again. I've seen you in a lot of real estate around the world over the years, and I want to begin with you. The title of this hearing is The Future of U.S. Policy Toward Russia. Your testimony has a number of references to NATO in your testimony, uh, both written and verbal. So how about just start with the direct question, how important is it to the future of U.S. policy toward Russia that NATO remains strong? I would say it's uh, absolutely essential. Um, the strength of NATO has been a cornerstone, uh, well, NATO has been a cornerstone of our national security strategy from since the 1940s, um, and it is uh, inconceivable what the world would be like if we had not developed that concept and continued to support it to, till today. NATO has many priorities. NATO was, has been very helpful to the United States in the battle against terrorism, for example, so it's not as if Russia is the only priority. Uh, but... Um, I take your testimony that NATO remains very important and, and it remains in, an important element of U.S. policy toward Russia. Uh, would our NATO allies say the same thing, that a strong, vibrant, continuous NATO is important in their own face-off vis-a-vis Russia? I believe so. There may be variations of intensity of view on the, that point. And right. Certainly the closer you get to Russia, the more uh, ardent that view is, but I would, I would support that. And I, I have no quarrel with the administration pressing NATO allies to not only you know, feel the commitment and benefit from NATO, but also to contribute proportionally. I think that's a smart thing to do. Um, I have a piece of legislation pending before the committee and a few months ago offered it as an amendment to an energy-related bill and at the chair's request pulled it aside and I hope that we may take it up. And, uh, in our next business meeting, the piece of legislation would basically say this, and sort of in honor of NATO's 70th anniversary, would clarify that no president could unilaterally withdraw from NATO, but that any withdrawal of the United States from NATO would have to be accomplished either by a Senate ratification, the Senate ratified the NATO treaty, or through an act of Congress. Um, would something like that provide assurance to our NATO allies that the United States intends to stay in NATO and be the partner as we use that alliance structure to benefit not only the United States but other nations in the world? Well, Senator, I, I don't want to address the specifics of your legislation. There may be other dimensions to the, the legal authorities and privileges of the executive branch in play there. But I, I would say that in my meetings, at any rate, with NATO allies, um, there is no alarm over the U.S. position. Uh, they're focused on appropriate burden sharing. Our conversations... How about the French president saying that he viewed NATO as being on brain death because of concerns among European allies that the United States was backing away from NATO? Yeah, I don't want to characterize the French president's comments. I mean, that's you, up to you, him. you would not characterize that as an expression of alarm? I would say he's, he has legitimate concerns. We all need to focus on NATO's future and make sure that it is relevant to the and challenges. And clear in our commitment to yeah, And to clear NATO. in our commitments, absolutely, sir. Well, well, my hope is this piece of legislation 
which is bipartisan, I think it would send a strong message that the United States under any administration, under Congress of you know, whichever party's dominance, would be very, very committed to NATO. There is, a, uh, there is a legal question that's been raised. It takes the Senate, a two-thirds vote of the Senate, to ratify a treaty. NATO was ratified by the Senate in that way. The Constitution is silent about exiting from treaties. Um, the relevant case law from the Supreme Court makes pretty plain when the Constitution is silent on something like that, Congress is free to legislate. Um, there's no barrier to Congress legislating. So right now, the situation without legislation is an ambiguity. Uh, but Congress can legislate and remove the ambiguity and provide reassurance to our NATO allies. Um, at the 70th anniversary of this very, very important to your own testimony, and I think others would agree, alliance, it's my hope that we would send that signal, uh, that a treaty that was entered into by the Senate cannot be unilaterally uh, discarded by, by any president, but would require some congressional action prior to it being uh, withdrawn or the U.S. presence in it being withdrawn. So just to my colleagues, I hope that we might be able to take that up, and I think at the 70th anniversary we could send some strong messages of the importance of the alliance that you continue to attest to uh, to our allies. So with that, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. I, I find it, uh, first of all, I, I've been consistently and aggressively outspoken about the threats posed by Russia. I believe going back to October of 2016, I was a candidate on the ballot, and I wouldn't comment on the leaks and things that were coming out. I said it was the work of a foreign power then. But, but I also am fascinated how a nation, I understand their tactical nuclear weapons, I understand their strategic uh, nuclear stockpile and so forth, but I find it fascinating, if we just take a deep breath here, how totally consumed American politics has become by a nation whose GDP is equivalent to Italy's and the state of New York, whose GDP is less than the state of Texas and Brazil's, and whose GDP is half the size of the state of California. Um, and, and I thought that was a really important question today. Uh, earlier, I was watching on the broadcast, uh, Senator Romney asked what their goal is. And I, and I want you both to comment on this. One of the things that I think Americans don't fully appreciate or understand is there are a lot of different ethnic groups that within the Russian Federation, um, and th they've always had friction internally, domestically. You combine that with rising prices, a growing sense of injustice and inequality, and what you have is, in many ways, a lot of what we see around the world, and even here what they've tried to do in the U.S., is about Vladimir Putin and trying to position himself as this great historic unifier of all of these different groups. You go back to 2014, they invaded Crimea. It was a high point in the public polling on his behalf because he, he built a sense of national unity around that, right? The, the argument to all these different groups within Russia that he was the one that was, they all faced the same threat from the West and he was the one that was bringing them together. And, and, and you even see now in many of the things he's doing around the world that much of these policies and much of that he's doing is, is designed to remind people of a time when the Soviet Union, vis-a-vis -vis Russia, were a great global power. And much of this is, as much as anything else, about distracting from the domestic problems that they face internally. Uh, isn't that a big, if not a significant, the significant uh, driver of a lot of these things at the end of the day, is a desire to address these internal things and rally everyone around this nationalistic sense of pride by distracting from the domestic policies and portraying himself as an indispensable leader and Russia as, as a great power, which they're not economically, but, but, but they can project power militarily in, in smart and creative ways that allow him to pull off the charade. 
Yes, Senator. Um, you've said more eloquently what I tried to say in response to Senator Romney's question, that, that precisely that, that this is uh, a matter of uh, Russia and Russia's leader trying to live up to a self-image as a global power, and that much of that is in order to distract from the internal problems within Russia that, uh, that, that they are experiencing. In that sense, I would imagine he deeply enjoys, not that we shouldn't look into things or talk about and so forth, but I, my, it would be my sense that he greatly enjoys watching so much of American politics be about Vladimir Putin and consumed by it for the last two and a half years. I mean, that certainly makes the argument, does it not? It's consistent with what we know the Russians are trying to do through social media and other tools to divide our nation. And the reason why I say that is not because I don't want us to focus on those issues. I'm a member of the Intelligence Committee. We spent two years looking at it and talking about it, issued what I thought was a very good bipartisan report. But I think we somehow have to figure out in this country how to do two things. On the one hand, address these threats. I believe one of the things we need to do is pass the Deter Act, which would actually put in place sanctions that would kick in even when Russia were to do this again. Um, because I do think Putin is a cost-benefit analyzer. He looks at the cost-benefit player, and if, he, and if the costs outweigh the benefits, it would most certainly um, affect him. But I also think we need to be cautious about, or at least aware of, these ongoing efforts. This is not a one-off effort on the part of the Russians via, via the efforts that Putin has put in. For example, this whole impeachment situation that's playing out nationally, and I don't expect you to opine on it, but I will tell you that you can see if you, if, you, if you just stand back and watch how they are even using this as a, as a way to sort of, the first thing they say is America is completely dysfunctional. The second argument is they're eroding trust in democracy, that it doesn't work, that, um, that uh, I think they also view it as an opportunity to damage our relationship with Ukraine. Um, and, and I think the goal ultimately, as I said, is to portray the U.S. as dysfunctional, to exacerbate our domestic tensions, which adds to that portrayal as dysfunctional, and, and also to argue that our system is corrupt. And, and I think it's as important as anything else. I think sometimes we get tunnel vision and we think that this is about supporting one singular individual or what have you. This is much bigger than that. And this is going to be here long after any of us are gone. It's this effort to weaken us from the inside, um, get us to fight one another, and to point to us as dysfunctional, not working, coming apart at the seams, because it also elevates him as, as a person who, in some ways, has the sly smile on his face every time he's blamed for it, because it's it, it sort of strengthens the argument that he's this, he's this big global player. That's my comment. I don't know. <laughs> thank you, Senator Rubio. Uh, you want another mic? Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, just a couple of things. I, I agree with my colleague and friend. Uh, the only thing I would say is, is that we harm ourselves more when we internally ultimately espouse the very essence of the Russia propaganda. That's, to me, one of the most detrimental elements of, of what's been happening. But Mr. H uh, Secretary Hale, uh, on a different matter for the moment, I'm alarmed to have learned today that Secretary Pompeo may be considering changing the way in which the State Operations Center places and participates in calls with foreign leaders. I'm concerned about the lack of transparency and lack of record-keeping that such a change may entail, in effect, keeping the American public and Congress in the dark at a time when we know that the President, senior State Department officials, and others appear to be carrying out official U.S. government foreign policy on personal cell phones. I'm not looking for an answer from you today, but this committee needs to understand what changes are being proposed 
how the department will maintain full and complete records, and what the intent is behind what appears to be an effort to keep the American public, Congress, and others from knowing about or understanding our government's communications with foreign leaders. And I urge you to bring this back to the Secretary uh, because uh, if there was ever a time that such an action would be disconcerting, it certainly is right now. Well, I'm not aware of any proposed change to our policy. The Secretary's in London today, but I understand uh, your concerns and questions. I will take it back to the Secretary of State and we will get back to the committee. I appreciate that. Now, uh, very briefly, uh, uh, Secretary Ford, you know, you repeated uh, something earlier in response to the chairman's first rounds of questions uh, that detractors of New START repeatedly bring up that Russia's new exotic nuclear systems and how the treaty may not constrain these systems are an issue. Uh, but you must be aware that Russia has already stated that two systems, the Sarmat ICBM and the Avangard hypersonic glide vehicle will fall under new starts. Is that not true? I believe the Russians have, have said that, and hopefully that indeed turns out to be the case. There would still be three systems then, the Bodovestnik, the Poseidon, and uh, I believe the Kinjal, uh, that, that would, uh, of course, not be covered in that respect. Well, or, here's, or here's the thing. When we say that, in fact, you know, we cannot imagine that these new systems wouldn't be covered, well, here's two already that the Russians themselves have agreed to, to cover, and if you don't explore in a negotiation what's willing to be covered, then I don't think you can dismiss it out of hand. Other further reports uh, indicate that other systems of concerns likely will not even reach deployment during the lifespan of New, new Start, even if it's extended. So uh, I, I join the echoes of concerns that several of my colleagues have said. First, on the on the China angle, China is dramatically under the U.S. Uh, uh, ability in the nuclear arsenal. Uh, so seeking to include them uh, creates a real dilemma in terms of what uh, Senator Merkley obviously pointed out. And secondly, suggesting that Russian systems uh, are a reason not to uh, continue New START is uh, also alarming when we have seen that they have agreed to two and maybe when pursued might agree to others. So, uh, I would urge uh, the administration uh, at looking at New START in a totally different way. Um, and I think that, uh, that uh, even our, uh, some of our allies have urged us to do so. Let me ask you something uh, else. Uh, Egypt is reportedly planning to purchase the Russian Sukhoi jets uh, have you had meetings with the Egyptians to dissuade them from making this purchase? Uh, well, Senator, I, I'm not in a position to speak about any specific uh, information we may or may not have about any particular potential uh, Russian arms transactions. Um, I can say that we have been very active. Well, I know about it, so I don't know why, why we're not talking about it. What's a big hush? It's out there in the public realm. But what I can say, sir, is that we've been very active around the world, uh, including with partners, uh, amongst them Egypt, 
uh, making very clear that they, uh, helping them understand the potential for, for CATSA Section 231 sanctions exposure. I myself have had conversations making those points about the importance of the law and avoiding that exposure uh, personally in Cairo as well as elsewhere. Um, these are the kinds of engagements that we've been, I think, very successful in having around the world and have been essential in our CATSA diplomacy to turning off or dissuading billions of dollars. Well, I'd, 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 like to get a, I'd like to get a classified briefing if you're not going to answer in public on this and other items as to where it is that we are pursuing other entities in the world. Finally, my understanding is you've been given all the authorities of the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security. Is that correct? Uh, on the 21st of October, Secretary Pompeo delegated uh, to me the authorities and responsibilities of that officer, yes. Uh, okay, now here's an example, while I'm, you may be very capable of doing that. You haven't been nominated for such a position. Uh, it, this appears to be another case of the State Department playing fast and loose with the rules in hopes that no one will notice. Uh, in order to... Uh, to do that, you, sh you should be nominated for the position. Uh, and if you were nominated uh, under the law, you'd be allowed to serve in that role for only 210 days. So uh, this is another concern I have with the State Department acting in ways that seeks to circumvent the oversight and jurisdiction of this committee. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. I, I would say, Senator, that there is, of course, no intent to circumvent anything. What there is is, an, is a recognition of the importance of not having those important duties be gapped. Uh, I am filling in until... Oh, I agree, I agree with you. Nominate somebody. decision is made. But, uh, nominate somebody, but at the end of the day, don't circumvent the committee. I mean, you all think that we're asleep at the switch here. We're not. We're not. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We have a couple of minutes left on the vote. Uh, but, Senator Cardin, did you want another? Yes, uh, thank you very much. I, that's right, we did start a vote. Um, fortunately, the floor tolerancy on votes seems to be pretty extensive, <laughs> as long as the chairman stays in the we chair. Have another I know very, I'm safe. We so. have another important matter, and <laughs> uh, that is the photo, picture of the committee. Uh, yes, if I, uh, I'll try to make this as quick as I can. I, I want to get to Russia's intentions in regards to Ukraine. We know the occupation of Crimea, what's happening in eastern Ukraine, falls into Russia's playbook to seed disunity in Europe, to prevent uh, Ukraine from fully integrating or even applying for NATO membership. We know that. We also know that, and we've had many questions on this uh, during this hearing, that the press accounts of Ukraine being involved in our election, which has been stoked by some individuals, uh, works into Russia's playbook, even though there's no facts at all from any of the security people and intelligence community diplomacy uh, that Ukraine was involved at all in, in the 2016 elections. I want to get to how we're proceeding with the peace talks. We first had Minsk the Minsk Protocols, and Russia was very excited about that, but just never complied with it, so I'm not sure exactly what their intentions are. Uh, we now have the Steinmeier uh, form, uh, formation, and I would like to get from Secretary Hale your thoughts about how we're proceeding. Are, is Russia winning this debate on how we're going to resolve the conflict in Ukraine by developing a formula that will ignore the occupation of Crimea and establish semi-autonomy for eastern Ukraine, but still keeping 
Ukraine a divided country? Is that where we're heading? What's what's going on in in this process? We uh, are united uh, with our allies in Europe and, of course, with the leadership in Ukraine to to get the Russians out of Ukraine. Crimea is part of Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine is part of Ukraine. So that is the objective. Um, And we call for the immediate uh, immediate end to this occupation. Now, our focus, there are several initiatives, as you have said, and it's good that the Normandy process is resuming after a long period where there was really nothing happening. We'll see what comes of that meeting on the 9th of December. I don't want to uh, predict something that hasn't you know, fully, fully formed yet. Um, but we've also seen that President Zelensky has, with some success, been able to engage in dialogue with the Russians to at least reduce the tension. But we need to see much more on the security front prior to any political activities related to to Minsk. And that gets to the heart of the issue of the occupation. And as it relates to the Steinmeier formulation that was recently released, it looks like Ukraine is following that. Russia seems to be excited about it, at least from what we've been told. Are we assured that we're not going to end up with some type of legitimacy of Russia in Crimea? We will never accept that. Well, that's pretty definitive. I appreciate that. Um, I think you have a lot of support here in in Congress for for that position. Obviously, we would like to ease the tensions wherever we can, so that's certainly a positive step. But as we've seen, Russia doesn't play by by any organized playbook of, of fairness on each side. Their objective is to keep us divided. So it's hard for us to imagine that they're going to follow any process that does not extend the division of Ukraine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Uh, with uh, Thank you to both of our witnesses. We sincerely appreciate your service to the country and appreciate your uh, testimony here today. Uh, I'll be entering some sub- supplemental materials for the record as well. For the information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business Friday. If the witnesses could respond uh, rapidly to those, uh, we would greatly appreciate With that, the committee is adjourned. Thank you.